This is Joseph Gervasi. I'm here with Mano Divina. Uh, we are recording this interview at my house in the Roxborough neighborhood of Philadelphia on June 6, 2015, and this is part of Loud Fast Philly. Hello, Mano Divina. Hello. Thank you so much for having me for this interview. Thank you for coming out to do it. My pleasure. Uh, let's begin with uh, young you. Uh, if you could tell me uh, where you were born and when. I was born in Plymouth Meeting, Pennsylvania. Very close to in here. The suburbs, yeah. Uh, and uh, I was born 1967 in July, and I think that was pretty much it as far as I can remember very little of my childhood. My memories first actually start kicking in when I started to go to concerts. They were the first things I can remember. How, well, how did you lose this great swath of time? I mean, that's a long time. I, I know. I, I can barely re I have an excellent memory, and I, I, can, I can remember telling my parents that I wanted to be an Olympic fencing tournament master uh -huh. and then I can remember going to concerts and all my memories seem to stem from my first concert forward so I don't remember much of of what happened I, I imagine I probably played baseball and swam in swim teams and and you, and you don't say this as sort of like an evasion to talking no about. I mean, not really at all I, I really have very little recollection Are you left with of sort of my... impressionistic you know images of floating in your head <laughs> no my, people will say to me like what's your first memory and i'm like my first memory that's clear to me was was you know seeing joe jackson at hershey park when i was 12 years old and going i like this concert thing i i want to do more concerts like this matter of fact i might even want to grow up and play concerts and not be a fencing tournament master mm -hmm. and then did you fence yeah oh okay, yeah you, and, and what was the reason why you were drawn to that I don't know. Uh, I mean, you know, every kid has their, what do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be a fireman. I want to be an astronaut. And I, I wanted to be an Olympic fencer. I have no idea why. Um, mm -hmm. I might have been influenced by like watching some old Earl Flynn movie at one yeah. point. But I clearly remember in details everything from my first concert forward. I mm -hmm. clearly remember in details what I was wearing and what store I bought the Clashes London Calling at, but I don't recall like what I did for my eighth birthday. Right. Well, do you have any impressions of what you know family was like or neighborhood was like you know, growing up? I think it was very typical suburban, uh, especially for that time, you know, growing up in the 70s. All the neighborhood kids played together. There was you know, no, no weird discrimination or anything like that. It was a happy suburban neighborhood where all the kids played kick the can and then we all went home for dinner and there was very it was very unremarkable I, I remember very little I remember thinking like suburban life seemed boring and city life seemed very exciting mm -hmm. and my first exposure to anything was going to concerts and you know, the first concert I saw was Joe Jackson at Hershey Park and then I saw some rock bands like I saw Sticks at the Spectrum and the Stones and and Aerosmith who seemed to have come to Philadelphia like every four months when I was a kid really for some reason. Seems to be the right city yeah. for that. <laughs> a lot of cheap trick you know opening for them and and I started to develop this musical taste and I came from this huge family of musicians all right so so let's take one step back on that my grandfather and his seven brothers and sisters all played in Tommy Dorsey's orchestra. And wow. when the orchestra retired, they settled in New Jersey, Philadelphia area. So my grandfather and his seven brothers and sisters all settled down and had kids. And those kids were taught musical instruments. And then all the whole family would jam. And then their kids were taught musical instruments. So I, I grew up in a very musical family. These are all Italians? All Italians. Both sides, 100%. Um, Where, when did they come into the U.S., you know? I believe my both my grandparents were right off the boat. I'm not sure about the one grandparents because I never got to get much of their history, but I know that my father's parents were like 
right off the boat. They had kids in America. They were living the American dream. Mm-hmm. You know, two kids, big white garage, fence around the house. You know, one dog. It was yeah, it was right. the, the Italian Sicilian or uh, yeah, uh, or, or, we're yeah. from Northern Italy. Okay, mm-hmm. uh, so you know, there's like this whole big. Uh, family community that was popular in the 60s and 70s growing up amongst the Italians in neighborhoods and my mom and dad actually went to school together. They were high school sweethearts. They started dating like in, in high school. Yeah, same and, with my parents. Oh, right. Yeah. And then, you know, stayed together, did the American dream, you know. He went to college, he got a job, they got engaged, they were married, they had, you know, a kid mm-hmm. and, you know, lived in the suburbs. So you are like, the only one. I'm the only one. Sense, right. Yeah. And, and, they lived this life where it was the American dream. It was what their parents wanted for them when they came to America in the first place. Mm-hmm. And my parents wanted to be very American. We weren't allowed to learn Italian in the household because, you know, oh, that's, you're, you've got to be American. You don't want to speak this. Right, because it would be so ghetto. Yeah. Exactly. And, and that's like one of my biggest regrets that I lived with all these Italian-speaking people and I had to grow up and learn Italian from a book. Do you, you know? speak Italian? Yeah, yes, but not very well. It's okay. about as passable as my French and it's probably completely weighed down with a horrible Philadelphia accent. Yeah, so. yeah. I, I but I try yeah. and I give it my best effort. I, I try to put as much music into it as I possibly can. And I feel that... Uh, our family felt like, let's make you as American as you can be. And we didn't know that that wasn't all we wanted to be. I wish I wish other members of my generation learned Italian and learned to cook and learned some of these wonderful gifts that my family had to share that they purposely didn't want to share with us because they wanted us to be American. Yeah, yeah. I feel like all of my old Italian, Sicilian Italian relatives were amazing cooks spoke Italian and that I got I could speak a little bit when I was a kid but it was all it was and all how did all them, of that just... happen by oral and teaching traditions from the people above them so I thought it was very wrong that most Italian Americans right off the boat chose to not pass these traditions on like they would have if we were all still in Italy and, and go on and say no you need to be American so let's not learn how to measure ingredients with your hands let's use the metric system and yeah, stuff yeah. like that but I guess there was also a lot of societal pressure where they're, conce- they're perceived as being either dirty or part of the mafia absolutely. and all that absolutely. so the, the, the sooner that they integrate into the right. the more society American the less discrimination you, exactly yeah. the more American you can be the better you're doing to fit in Yeah, and fitting in as us kids growing up in the punk rock world knew was not what we were trying to do so maybe there was some explanation about its roots in that particular thing i i wasn't particularly rebellious in any way shape or form what approached me was growing up in this giant musical family we all played lots of instruments Mm -hmm. and unlike many other people and my peers at that time we were exposed to everything it wasn't uncommon to sit after dinner and listen to Mozart and then Dave Brubeck and then Jimi Hendrix and then Led Zeppelin and then Montavani and then Mancini and then opera singers and then well what do you have oh here's this new band that I just bought called Black Flag well let's hear them I mean there was this like if it was music Shut up and listen. There was none of this, oh, that's yours, this is theirs, this belongs to this generation. Mm -hmm. It was like my family grew up with music is music. It's all different. Some of it you're going to like, some of it you're not. And they treated it like food. Mm -hmm. So by the time I was like 14, I was listening to jazz and classical and opera and rock and punk rock and Mm -hmm. prog rock and all kinds of stuff that my peers were 
either too focused on the radio or just doing the classic rock or just going all punk rock. They didn't have this wide palette. And amongst that palette, I discovered punk bands that I fell in love with, like you know, the Ramones and in particular The Clash. I, I never heard music like The Clash did. And to this day, they're still one of my favorite and most listened to groups. Mm -hmm. And I, I remember being a kid and buying London Calling. Uh, I actually remember... You couldn't buy the first album because it was an import. The first mm -hmm. album in America was the second album, Give Him Enough Rope, and it mm -hmm. had just come out. This was pre-London Calling days, and, and I bought it, and then the first album got released. And by the t Right after, shortly followed, was um, London Calling. So within like 1978 to the middle of 1979, they had appeared with three albums, three radically different albums, mm -hmm. and that was this wide musical palette that I loved. I was already listening to punk and reggae and... Here was a band actually putting all of that into one thing without sounding like a bunch of white guys trying to pretend they were Jamaican mm -hmm. or a bunch of American guys trying to pretend they were English and punk rock. And yeah. I didn't get any of that. I felt this was an authentic mix mm -hmm. of musical styles. And The Clash were the first group I heard that mixed this type of potpourri, all these ingredients to make a particular meal. And that really resonated with me as a youth, that a band could wear all these influences, amalgamate them into their sound, mm -hmm. and stay true to them while still elevating them to a new level. And I think that comes full circle to exactly what I do today with classical music, or should I say try to do today <laughs> with classical music. For those uh, people, for those haters out there. But a lot of uh, young people, you know, as you're saying, kind of gravitate towards a certain type of music. It seems like you were moving in the punk scene with a lot of other interests, but why was it that punk became the scene, that, like the scene that you were physically moving through, or maybe like visually identifying with more more so than the other scenes of music? That's a great right? question. Um, all right, let's see. If if I had to think about it, it actually boiled down to one person and one concert. As as a kid. I started to gravitate more towards punk music. The Clash opened up a lot of new vistas for me. This would have been all like 1979, 1980. And then the, the, the famous and dreaded New Wave hit. Mm -hmm. And a lot of bands were going New Wave. And I started to like New Wave, which sounded like a happy version of punk meets radio-friendly rock. And bands like the Boomtown Rats and all these new styles and sounds started to come out right around 79 and 80. And it was very influential. I felt what gravitated me towards the punk scene was, unlike a lot of my peers, I wasn't into the jeans and concert shirt phase. I was a Clash fan, and the Clash dressed very differently. Mm -hmm. So as a 12, 13, and 14-year-old, I emulated that. And you know, I had suspenders and collared dress shirts and fedoras and you know, rolled up peg leg pants with Doc Martens. I wasn't just jeans, high top Converse, and a Ramon shirt. Yeah, yeah. And, as a little kid, being very short, this made me stand out a bit. And I went to go see The Clash, some giant hockey rink that had camouflage stuff up all over it. Mm -hmm. And after the concert was over, I, I'm, I'm guessing I was like maybe 13 at the time. After the concert was over, I, I was walking around and, you know, trying to... I was a, a kid from the suburbs and an only child. So I didn't know anybody. Yeah. So I was just walking around trying to like meet people and like this like gorgeous punk rock older girl came up and started to compliment me on my outfit. And you know, you're a 12, 13 year old guy and some gorgeous punk rock girl, Julie Minutesteak, by the way, is who I'm referring to, uh, 
comes up to you and she's got, you know, the fishnets and the makeup and she's talking to me and, you know, you're that dumb boy. <laughs> wow, this is awesome. And she said, well, you know, if you're not doing anything, there's this hardcore punk rock party tomorrow night at 2nd and Mainbridge and it's this loft and I was like, wow, you know, this is great. So I went there with this, like, some hot older punk rock girl invited me and there's going to be punk bands here and this is totally different than walking into an ice rink to see The Clash. Mm -hmm. So I went there and I I met Chuck Meehan that night and I met uh, Jim McMonagle that night and... and um, I, I met Julie and Abby, whose real names I don't know today, but uh, I, I met them and it started this, this circle of friends and Julie actually took me around and started to introduce me to people and perhaps it was the fact that I was dressed slightly more unusual than the average teenage punk would have been dressed at that particular time or the fact that I was new to the scene, but the first thing that hit me about Philadelphia's punk rock hardcore scene and the thing that has stayed with me my entire life was how open and embracing it was. That a kid from the suburbs could come up and make new friends and be welcomed and nobody wanted to know what band you were into or mm -hmm. judge you by the buttons you were wearing. Right. They could care less. Mm -hmm. We were here to celebrate youth, our, our, our culture, everything we didn't like about government, everything mm -hmm. we did like about music and this whole aesthetic of people can get a burned out barely running loft and live there and, mm -hmm. and put on concerts there that aren't meant for other people who didn't understand. Mm -hmm. And that started me to meet these people and to connect with them. And of course, the, the first person I really made a connection with was Jim McMonagle from FOD, which this was pre-FOD days. And he had talked to me and he said, uh, you know, I'm trying to put together this group. Do you, do you play anything? And I said, well, I play drums and guitar and bass, because I come from this family of musicians, mm -hmm. but I don't have drums. I, I have a, an elaborate series of, of cigar boxes that I used to practice on with chopsticks. And did you, but you did actually play. I, I could play yeah. the drums because yeah. I had grown up in a musical family, but I didn't actually own a drum set. Right. You, you can't hire a drummer who doesn't own a drum set. Yeah, right. And I told him, I said, you know, I can play, but I just have these cigar boxes and chopsticks. And Jim goes, perfect. That's exactly what I want. I don't want a drummer with drum sets. So he hired me. And we became Jimmy Normal in the Japanese horror films. And I think we played like maybe one or two shows as that. And then we met Zeke. Uh, later on, Zeke was from McGrad. Mm -hmm. uh, his father owned Eyes Gallery and still owns Eyes Gallery on South Street. Very famous artist. Big shout out to Isaiah, who's very kind to me now. And we've, we've become close friends. And Zeke, me and Jim decided... Let's form a punk band beyond Jimmy Normal and the Japanese horror films, which were actually closer to like Bonzo Dog Band than punk rock. And you're all urban spacemen. Yeah, exactly. And and we were big jam fans, so that's where the the words "Flag of Democracy" came from, a jam song, I believe, one off Setting Sun, so I'm not positive. And we started off like rehearsing and getting our stuff together in my little suburban basement home. What were you playing for the drums? I, I, I mean, at that point, I was still playing like really crazy. And I yeah. borrowed a drum set off my cousin until I could afford to buy my own drums. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I played on borrowed drums and then eventually saved up all my birthday money and all that other right. kitty stuff. Right. You're still living with your parents. Yeah, time, I'm right? still living with my and, parents. And what age and are you I, at this point? I'm probably like 13, 14 at this particular point. Mm -hmm. um, and... FOD, I remember I got my first drum set when I was 15, my first real drum set, and I remember we played our first gig 
as FOD when I had my first real drum set, and we were phenomenally lucky. Our first gig was opening for Minor Threat at Buff Hall in, in New Jersey. Yeah, this and is one of the most infamous slash famous shows of all hardcore it, history. It, of all so. hardcore history. And, I, you know, I was sitting right next to Ian when his head was bleeding, and I was going, ah, I think your band's really great. <laughs> like, yeah, hey, my, my head's crushing blood right now. Now, Thanks I mean, some people know, know the story of that show from, from a variety yeah. of different sources, but if you could just kind of give a, a brief overview of what, you know, who played where, what Exactly. Was well, that. you know, we at that point, we Minor Threat were the big boys. We knew we were getting an awesome gig opening for an awesome group, and it was, you know, it was going to be in another state, and it was going to involve, like, bands. And, well, that, that state is New Jersey. New and Jersey. The, and the city is Camden, yeah. which I guess the listeners should know is the, should know. one of the worst, well, now is the worst city. Yeah. Like, yeah. It wasn't as big a deal as we thought as far as the way we looked at it, right, right. but we thought but it was you awesome. With minor threat, though. yeah, exactly. And so, and we had to rent a U-Haul, and we just got in our instruments and our like new amps. How do you wind up on that show? I mean, surely there were other bands who who had played more. I'm really not that. sure how we ended up on that show. To be honest, I mean, I I, I think you'd have to ask Jim how that happened. I just know that we we'll were going to. Well, say Ian McKay picked you out of a yeah, bands yeah, that sounds country. great. Yeah. I think I put our name in a hat and just pulled it out. But it ended up being really cool, and we had this really incredible opportunity unlike most groups trying to play for like 20 people in 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 a loft somewhere we were getting up in front of hundreds of people that were really interested in i don't know who you are or what you sound like but i'm gonna shut up for about six minutes that should be enough for about five songs and let's Mm -hmm. see if i like you or not and they we were very fast um Having been a musician for a while and having worked without a drum set, I had kind of figured a way to play faster than most people would be able to play by using what's called independence. Instead of both hands hitting at the same time, hands hitting opposite one another, Mm -hmm. which would be a technique I would later go on to use extensively playing Latin music with Tito Puente. But going all the way back now Mm -hmm. to teenage years, so I, I was able to play fast, which meant our group was able to play really fast music and this really appealed to people that god they're so fast yeah, this is 81 right 81 yeah or, yeah. Yeah, yeah 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 uh so so that puts you among the first wave of american hardcore bands playing you know and increased volumes kind of the more stripped down exactly in the 70s the punk rock style e- exactly I, I can remember us playing with gangrene and people being like i've never heard any bands play the way you guys are playing you're like mm-hmm beyond the speed barrier and we were just like yeah well, that's what we do but, but was there a conscious thought in, in you know going into the band that, that there was going to be this move into something that I mean I don't even know if how, how much the word hardcore had been used at that time uh, you know probably that's a good point I don't think that term had really been thrown around a lot just yet mm-hmm. now I know it did in the next sub- subsequent years really manifest itself yeah, yeah it, didn't, it seems like it wouldn't have taken long for it to kind of spread but, at but, that but point, it, it seems like, a, like you made a very clear conscious move to be playing this thing that would be ultimately be known as hardcore it was and, and it's funny we didn't look at it that way just like everything is an imitation I mean the Beatles were trying to sound like Elvis you know they don't sound like Elvis no. they sound like the Beatles but they were yeah. trying to and Elvis was trying to sound like blues musicians which he doesn't no. but he was trying to so you get your influence and you amalgamate it into something original and I think that's what happened we Jim and I were big fans of the Dickies. Mm-hmm. We were trying to just play fast, happy pop songs. Right. It just so happened that that morphed into what became thrash or hardcore. And mm-hmm. since people loved, you know, running around into a circle and throwing themselves into right. one another, we realized that the faster we played, the more they did this. The more mm-hmm. they did this, the more fun they must be having over yes, there. Yes, yes. So that's what pushed us to keep going faster and faster. Mm-hmm. And our first show was 
you know, history and, and widely received. And like we walked off stage and people all over telling us how much they loved it and how great it was. And I remember a lot of people being like, you're only 14 or 15, however old I was at the time. Mm-hmm. People being like, wow, that's pretty cool that you're, you're doing this. And I thought that was odd because I didn't feel like anyone was really that much older than me, even though... Technically, they weren't. They were only like a year or two older. But they had been involved in this scene from its buddings, and I was kind of new to it. Mm-hmm. And from that concert, led to another concert and another concert and another concert. The term hardcore came around. And next thing you know, and it, here's our first praise of Philadelphia's greatness. No, our second. Our first praise is that a kid could walk into a loft and be accepted by complete strangers who don't judge you on your musical tastes or anything like that. Good luck finding that today, kids. But Mm -hmm. back then, I think that's a testament to the open-minded coolness of Philadelphia's punk rock hardcore scene. Our second was how quick a punk band could come up through the grassroots level when all these other skinny-tie, quasi-rock, quasi-prog bands were playing these same tired circuits Mm -hmm. to, you know, metalheads or or whoever they were trying to appeal to. Next thing you know, we're playing CBGBs and we're playing, you know, Trenton City Gardens and we're getting bigger and bigger. Then we're opening for the Dickies and then we're opening for the Dead Kennedys. And I'm a huge fan of these groups and I'm a musician. So I'm sitting there talking to members of the Dickies and the Dead Kennedys about specifics of music that they weren't used to most people talking to them about. Like D.H. Pellegro and I, while we were touring with the Dead Kennedys, sat in locker rooms that were our dressing rooms talking about like paradiddles and quadruplets and Mm -hmm. Ruth Underwood from Frank Zappa's four-handed mallet technique. And (laughs) this was not your average punk rock conversation. And... FOD got bigger and bigger and bigger and then Zeke left and he went into McRad and Dave Rashawn came and we just kept playing and playing and playing and we'd record when we could. Our first recording started off with like just a boombox in our in, in my basement mm-hmm. where we'd practice in the suburbs of Plymouth Meeting. Right. And back then we, we never in a million years thought that people were going to listen to those tapes or that they were going to go very far. We just wanted to sell them at Love, Love Hall. That, that was our plan. That was our whole big world domination plan. Mm-hmm. We're going to make these demos. We're going to sell them at Love Hall. We're gonna be famous. That's how that plan's gonna work. And um, who did you consider to be your brother or sister bands in Philadelphia? Who who were you closest with at, at the time? time? We were very close with the guys in Wydi. Um, we didn't share a lot of bills, but we hung out a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were friends with all the guys in a group called Homo Picnic. We were friends with all of them. Um, I also was good friends with some bands that had come before us, like Head Cheese, uh, Crash Course in Science, uh, The A's. These weren't punk bands. Mm-hmm. These were considered more new wave crossover bands. But again, I didn't put up walls and distinctions and barriers like this. So I liked the A's as much as I liked any other, you know, band. And the Reds was another group that from Philly that, you know, I, their roadie worked in a local record store when I'd be going in buying my Blondie records. And, you know, we'd strike up a conversation. So I'm trying to think of some of the other bands in that particular time. I know uh, Wide Eye and FOD hung out a lot. I know Crib Death was another band. They later went on to be the Blunder Boys. Uh, we hung out a lot. Matter of fact, we'd go to each other's rehearsals. We'd go to the Plymouth Meeting Mall a lot. Um, Ethan Jarvis I met back then, who later went on to be in McRad. Uh, Chuck Therese I met back then, you know, going all the way back to skating for Pepsi. And so there was this, like, 
super big conglomerate of friends and everyone played in a band. Everyone had a sticker and everyone had a demo tape. Mm -hmm. And so FOD wanted a tape, you know, so we recorded in our little, my little basement on our boom box. And we never in a million years thought that that was going to have a lifestyle, a, a lifespan beyond a year. We didn't think that was going to matter till you record the all important album. Yeah. So we recorded some singles and some EPs and jumping all the way to the future, it's amazing to me to see them now reissued, remastered. We'd go on XBN and we'd play live on uh, on the, the, the oh no, KDU, it was the KDU show. Mm -hmm. And we'd play live. Yeah, we didn't think anything of it. Our friends would record it at home on a cassette. We'd listen to it once and it'd be done. And then, you know, again... 30 some years later to see them all remastered on disc is, is something I never expected and was pretty incredible. And FOG just kept playing and getting bigger and playing more and more shows. And you say you toured with Dead Kennedys? And, and Dickies and I think those were our two like many show kind of things. And then we and did... What, what areas were you playing in when you were in Jersey, D.C. We, we never went really much further than like D.C. or New York. I, I can remember because you know that was a big deal. To, to pile in People say to me, did you go to your prom? I said, no, we were opening for the Bad Brains the yeah. night of my prom. Yeah, a bit so, more impressive. Yeah, a bit more impressive than going to the yeah. prom. Of course, it falls short when people go, who? Like, Never mind. But yeah, Well, you're talking to the wrong people. <laughs> but, you know, getting a U-Haul and, and, and spending the day in Brooklyn and doing sound checks at, at, at CBGB's, and this was like punk rock history, and you were... It was so vibrant. It was so great to be a part of it. I wouldn't trade that decade or that lifestyle for any other lifestyle or decade out there. I thought Philadelphia, It's my third praise here for Philly was the incredible support the scene shows. And I'm going to give you a little bit of a history by what I mean by that. When I was a kid and you'd go to Love Hall, there was four or 500 people at a show. Today, I've got friends and bands struggling to get 50 people to a show. And that's the difference of Philadelphia scene back then mm -hmm. and Philadelphia today. Sure, technology, movies, money, uh, competition, that all comes into play. But my point was when a band came, when Scream came up from DC, when the Minutemen came on tour, hundreds and hundreds of people came. And you went there early because if you didn't know everyone there, you became friends with everyone there. I never once had a bad time of somebody being mean to me or wrong to me or treating me like crap. Complete strangers always embraced you. Then they found out you were in a band. They'd have your record mm -hmm. or something of the sort. They'd like the shirt you were wearing. Didn't I see you play this show? Didn't you guys open for UK subs? And, and you made friends everywhere. Everyone was so polite. There wasn't fights or wars or anything like that. There wasn't any racial, at least not that I experienced. Mm -hmm. I don't mean to say that there wasn't. I'm probably sure there was, but not that I experienced. As a matter of fact, the big gag with the cops then were, you know, this was, this was when Rizzo was with his militant Nazi police force, was they didn't want to arrest you and they didn't want to beat you up. So what they do was they grab you off the street if you were punk. If you were walking around with like jeans and boots and a mohawk and, and a chain, they grab you and they throw you in, the, in a wagon and they drop you off on North 5th Street <laughs> with a concept of you'd have to walk home you're going to get beat up and that never happened and they must have dropped me <laughs> off like 20 times and you know the the puerto rican gangs of 1988 were like hey Holmes, what are you doing here and you were like 
Cops drop me off like, yeah, they suck. Walk six blocks this way, make a right, you'll be cool. Like, no one ever beat me up. No one nothing ever... better to do with the cops than the drive park. That's what they did. Drop them off in the bad neighborhoods. We'll teach you. I got dropped off in West Philly. I got, I'm 5'5", five, five, guys, for those who don't know me. And I was a lot shorter then. I, I was no threat to anyone. This was the cops' big plan to you know get your ass kicked and, and wash their hands of it. And again, all I saw was brotherly love. All I saw was Philly pulling together. Nobody was going to beat me up because I had a mohawk or because I had chicken bones braided into my hair. Did you have they, chicken bones braided? Yeah, I did hair? actually for, for a long time. I was a big Bow Wow Wow fan and uh, I had shaved out my, the sides and grown a mohawk, but not the kind you wear up. <laughs> I thought I'd be different and wear mine down. Right. And, and one day, let me think, was it Rich from Homo Picnic? There was there was there was this, several different squat houses and stuff like that at the time, and mm-hmm. somebody had just cooked chicken and we boiled the bones and bleached them, and some girl braided them into my inga braided them into my hair, and I ended up like wearing chicken bones in my hair for like two or three years. Jeez, that's a long time to chicken. Is it I, uncomfortable I, to sleep with chicken bones? I had no idea. Years later, I had uh, four and a half foot dreads that I wore for fourteen years, and. They never bothered me till I cut them off, and then I realized, oh my god, if I had known what sleeping was like before uh, dreads. Did they get bugs in them? Oh, there's a great story, but we're, I'll save that till we get to that point uh, in the dread, timeline. Dread, dread bugs? Dread yeah. bugs. If I kept notes for years, yes. I'd write it down. Yeah, dread bugs will be where we're getting. So right now, we're still in the, the, the early 80s, let's say 83, 84. FOD recorded some singles. We got a chance to record our album. We went in and recorded our album. It came out. We loved our album. And who was putting out the record? I think it was B.O.R. was the name of the record label. I don't recall. Now, of course, today, Bruce has put it, reissued it, but I don't Rose recall Bio the original. Records. I think I yeah. think it was. Mm-hmm. And next thing you know, we're opening for bands that I love, like the Dead Kennedys and the Dickies and, and UK subs. Like these, these were dreams come true. But unlike so many of the other, my, my um, comrades... I also had a much wider musical palette, so I was also sitting in with some jazz groups, and I joined some reggae groups, and some ska groups, and and some art groups, and I bought my drums off my drum teacher, Bobby Ray Dute, who was playing drums in Bunny Drums, so I'd go and see them and do percussion with them. It wasn't always punk rock, it wasn't always mm-hmm. hardcore, but it didn't matter, because there weren't walls and definitions. and. Every show, hundreds of people would come. The support was incredible back then. A support you don't see these days for big bands, but unknown local hardcore bands, Philly came out and drove. So that was what was another great thing that was awesome about that particular time and the support system Philadelphia offered to its musical um, sons, its musical daughters, its its homegrown, up-from-the-streets feeling. And uh, I'm sure you know about Love Hall and stuff. These were burned-out husks of buildings that nobody could do anything with that we'd get together. People in Philly would get together and manage to put on a show and, and get electricity running for that show and get a PA system and, and book eight bands. And hundreds of kids would come mm-hmm. like, from the suburbs, from other states, and it would be successful and everyone would make money and and not that that was what it was about at all but it, every band would have a good showing and there was lots of people there to support you mm-hmm. and you met new people every week we met new people and the punk rock scene started to grow and this was when south street was actually a punk rock hangout place and yeah. things got more and more popular and and continued to 
um, what's the words I'm looking for? I guess grow and expand. The club started to get bigger. I mean, we went, you know, there was the Elks and then there was the CEC and, 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 and Love Hall and Love Club. And these some of these places started to get huge and have balconies and stuff like that. And they would fill up and they would fill up. And then the bank came around. Well, it's called the bank today. I don't know what we called it back then, but it was right on Broad Street. It was this huge, big place that lots of shows happened. And more and more people started to come and then Jersey shows started to happen and Trenton City Gardens started to have groups like Butthole Surfers and, and groups that they weren't normally catering to, let's say four years before that. Mm -hmm. This whole big punk scene started coming from there and then we started to meet folks from Jersey at Philadelphia shows and it was this awesome melting pot of support. If a girl got beat up, 10 guys went and took care of the justice. Mm. Skinheads, to my knowledge, didn't have wars or get jumped. They talked about old ska records. Mm. It was a loving community. Yeah, and I'm it sure, seems to have changed some, a few oh, years yeah. later than that. Uh, it, it did. and But this was when, it, in, in its in its Maybud tenderness, this is how it started. Yeah. And, 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 and people were helpful and supportive. There was 15 and 16-year-old girls that had groups of Boys that were their friends protecting them, both from cretins on the street mm -hmm. and from, you know, maybe undesirables that happened to be at that particular show. But nobody was in danger. Everybody, it, it was a support system. It was a community. And you cared about these people more than the people you went to grade school with or high school with at the time. These were people that, you know, I guess they all chose to be there, you know, rather in school where you're in effect almost like in prison, you're just happy to point. be there. Yeah, where, this is where you were born, therefore you're covered by so this region. So you have to but, go by the camaraderie. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, that, that and how do you think that the city was perceived by the other bands that were coming through the city that performed, or when you would perform in other cities and people would be? No, I don't know for a fact, but I would guess we were considered one of the coolest cities. I know Boston was considered a cool city. I know DC was considered a cool city. These were punk rock meccas. This is yeah, New York as well. Yeah, and yeah. and of course, you know, when when we went up. When we'd go up to New York, I'd, I'd go into like a Rasta store, like Cool Runnings, and like, you know, I'd have like a Bad Brain shirt on, and people knew who they were, mm -hmm. and that kind of, like, there was always this, there weren't really many barriers like I see today with everything. Mm -hmm. Back then, I didn't perceive them. Perhaps they were there, and my young mind just didn't perceive it. Mm -hmm. Uh, a great example was there was people in the community that were very much into getting torn up and blasted as, and whacked out on drugs. And there was other people there that were very dedicated to straight edge. And there was no conflict. I, I never saw people fighting. They're, oh, you're straight edge? Yeah. Oh, you, you drink a lot? Yeah. And that was the end of that conversation. Where did you come in on, on the use of drugs I and was, drinking and all that? For the most part, I was always straight edge. I, I don't drink. I didn't drink then. I, I don't drink now. I'd experimented with whatever drugs were going around. Most of them I didn't like. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, Did you they, find any positive experiences through the use of any of the drugs? I often ask people for who use psychedelics if they've had a, any kind of a positive. I would say yeah, and I, I would say that you know again I'm going to go to Jim McMonagall. I mean, like the, the first time I ever really like got high or did any kind of mind altering drugs was you know with Jim, and and Jim uh, played Alice Cooper's Love It to Death, Bonzo Dog Bands, um, Yellow Cover. I think it was called Gorilla. And the Rolling Stones' Satanic Majesty's Request. And I remember hearing this music mm -hmm. that I had heard before, but hearing it for like the first time because I'd never heard it psychedelicized. And this is with marijuana? with pot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was like, you know, okay, I, I, I get why people do this. It makes music sound different. Mm -hmm. But then also having grown up as a musician, I realized that 
the way music sounds when you're on drugs and the way music is executed when you're on drugs are two totally different things and mm -hmm. that you, you need to understand the line. So I learned at a very early age that, you know, drugs are great for listening to music, not great for playing music. I, to this day, I've never met another person who actually plays their instrument better on drugs mm -hmm. than they did straight. I know that these myths exist. Charlie Parker's a great example. Like, you know, apparently couldn't play very well till he was whacked out, but... I've never come across that. I've never seen that proven. And I don't think the scene was very drug-oriented. Sure, they were there, and sure, drinking was there, and but it was about music. It was about collecting records. It was about seeing bands. It was about, I don't know who this band is, but I want to see this band. Now, you asked me about how Philly was perceived. I remember very specifically when the Italian hardcore group Raw Power came to Philadelphia and them just being like, Italy sucks, Philadelphia is the greatest thing in the world, you've got this incredible scene. That's why your ancestors moved here. Yeah, exactly. And I'm going, wait, and this is why. This, they were like, but we could walk down the street and we see people in cramp shirts and we, like, we don't have that in Italy. And I remember you know, like talking to them at great length about like fashion wasn't as important then as it seems to be looked at as it was now. Like, oh, people look back on that and go, oh, fashion was important. Fashion wasn't important. Nobody cared about any of that stuff. You know, laces in your boots and how you wore your suspenders. Then people were there to spend time with each other, enjoy music, and have a good time. My biggest memory of all those things is how much laughter everybody had. Mm -hmm. How much I'd go home with my sides hurting from laughing all night. The funny things people would say, like when a band would play and somebody didn't like them, and we had so many cut-ups, like Mark Sargent, that, you know, four notes in, would be, are you guys done yet? And I'd be rolling around on the ground, thinking it was like the funniest thing I had ever heard. What do your parents think of you with a mohawk with chicken bones in it? That's very funny. I remember my mom telling me that I looked like a chicken, but my, my, my parents at that point, having lived the American dream, the 70s came around and they decided life would be better if we were swinging divorcees. Mm -hmm. So they separated and became divorced. Now, I remember this pretty clearly. In my grade school in eighth grade, not one single kid's parents were separated or divorced. I was the first kid. You'd only heard about this in the movies. Kramer yeah. versus Kramer had yeah. just come out and I was the one kid that, oh my God, his parents are divorcing. Yeah, I'll go to eighth grade today and try to find me a kid whose parents are still yeah, together. I don't think it It'd took that because I'm not that much uh, younger than you, but by right. the time, yeah, I mean, it was usually it was about split, uh, it seemed, between everybody. Uh, so that's what we had. My, my, I was shunned by, oh, his parents are getting divorced, and mm -hmm. my parents were going their separate ways, and this was the marvelous time of disco. <laughs> so we've got, like, you know, my mom wants to, you know, go out dancing all night and, and you know meet a bunch of new guys and my dad wants to go out disco discoing all night and meet a bunch of new women and the adults went down that lifestyle and parenting became very secondary mm -hmm. i was always an only child i my one of my earliest memories was that i'd spend my entire saturdays going from cartoons to kung fu movies to monster movies to bad late night monster movies like mm -hmm. i don't remember saturdays outside dr. playing shock baseball yeah of dr shock <laughs> to and I loved that stuff. The, the cheaper the monster movie, the better. To this day, a huge passion of mine. If yeah, yeah, there's invisible nylon well. strings or rubber zippers, I'm in heaven. Mm -hmm. I own Maybe more, a giant ant? Uh, yeah, I'll take that too. <laughs> I own more bad horror movies at home than I own actually good horror movies mm -hmm. because they're entertaining to me. That cheapness is something I appreciate. Yeah, cheap I and remember, cheerful. Yeah, right. And I remember growing up in that. And then 
FOD was doing well, and this whole new batch of hardcore bands came around. People like like Circle of Shit with Broodbaker, and these these new bands were coming up, and the scene was growing and expanding, and new bands were coming out, and I was playing in other scenes as well, and none of them touched how awesome the Philadelphia hardcore scene was. Mm -hmm. So we'd meet people from other cities and other countries, and they just thought Philadelphia was awesome, and you know, this whole home of liberty, mm -hmm. punks in the streets, walking down South Street, but because of this divorce, because of that particular thing, for some reason I got it in my head to run away from my happy suburban life and go live in the city and started to you know, squat with punk rock kids and stuff like that. And that was a whole new education. Where were you squatting? You know, I remember it being Strawberry Mansion around that area, but mm -hmm. I'm not positive that that's actually where it was. And what was the the building that you were in? I mean, what, what they were like dilapidated old houses that like ten punks would be staying in. I remember staying with Brubaker for ages. He was right on Second and South. He was above First on your block imports, and you know, he didn't even have running water. But we, we'd stay there for you know days at a time to make money. We sit on our skateboards and panhandle on South Street. I mean, my idea of a good day back then was if I had scraped up $4.50. Uh, immigrant ancestors saw this. Yes, exactly. Rolled over <laughs> their motherfucking graves thinking about if, that. If I could scrape up $4.50 to eat a gym steak, that was a good day. Uh -huh. There was a little tiny itty-bitty skate... Well, it wasn't a skate park. It was a little tiny park that we turned into a skate park right down the street from Brubaker's. And, and you skated? We'd sk uh, yeah, I was a huge skating fan until I turned 16. And, and I met uh, Martin Chambers from um, The Pretenders backstage at the tower. And he told me that he ruined his career by breaking his wrist. And I... Mm. Yeah. Gave up skateboarding because I had spent yeah. too many hours practicing drums yeah. to want to do that. And I'm very glad I did because now I play an instrument that's very, you know, it's very important. My wrists and hands are at their highest functioning capacity. Mm -hmm. And I felt that at the time, like, this whole scene was blowing up and, and, and bands were playing everywhere and people were united and helping one another. And there was this really great scene that was growing day by day. And we were all there to help each other. Even if we didn't like your band's music, we were there for support. And we would mm -hmm. tell you, that's not my bag, but I'll be there cheering and clapping because that's what Philadelphia did. We supported each other. And occasionally when the Rizzo folks would beat up some punks, we'd try to help out best we could. Of course, the infamous Cater Street riot. You, you want to tell is, the, the story Yeah, the that Cater thing. Street was this... Somebody found this little itty-bitty dead-end alley and said, there's a good spot for a punk show. And see, that's what Philly was all about. When you couldn't get a burned-out husk mm -hmm. of a building, you, you found an alley. You plugged into some neighbor's uh, uh, outlet yeah, and you yeah. put on a show. And, and eight years later, Abe Stakes was doing the same thing. You know, like, I got a back room and a stage to put on shows there. It was this real homegrown concept of... You can do anything you want anywhere. And that's a really important point I'd like to make in this interview that I'm going to get to in a moment. The most important thing that Philadelphia Hardcore taught me was three letters. D-I-Y. Do it yourself. Mm -hmm. Everything I do today and everything I've ever done in my life that was successful was because Philadelphia taught me that... You don't need a big concert venue. You don't need $10,000 in backing and advertising. What you need 
is a place to put on music and people who care about it. Mm-hmm. And you can't put a price on that. That's intangible. So if we could get to the point where you could get that, then well, we, we need like sneaky xylophone music for that. <laughs> <laughs> the listener will never know. It just yeah, exactly. <laughs> Anyway, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Anyway, so... uh, Or the check walking up the stairs. (laughs) So we had this... And when I was squatting, and and there was was even more of a family vibe. People were protecting one another, and and people were interested in who was going out with who, and you didn't break this girl's heart without getting an earful from these guys, Mm. and, you know... Sean the skinhead just got dropped off on North 5th Street. Let's meet him halfway to make sure that roving gangs of kids on BMXs, which used to happen on South Street before Tower Records came up there, that was common. Who who were these kids? They were just kids from the projects who ran around on bikes and would knife you for a dollar. I mean, I think Dave Rashawn has a great story about homeless guys uh, uh, knifing him for a dollar. And when I say great, I don't mean it in that sense. I mean, he's got this very elaborate story about how, you know, you could get killed. You could be a poor punk rock kid who only has a dollar in his pocket and still get killed on the streets for that dollar. And I think that was a little bit of the climate we were growing up in back then. So I felt it was like a lot of Philadelphia against this punk scene. And that may have been the reason why the punk scene pulled together to be so united and to help one another so much. And I must be right about something because look how many of us still are in touch today and still go see Wide-Eye and FOD and other bands like that. Um, it's kind of amazing that that still happens. I think that's yeah, I mean, a testament. I've, I've felt that through many of the interviews that I've done of people you know, coming from a certain era is the connection that they feel to one another and, and the really fond recollections they have of the period and the seeds that that planted into the, that grew into the people Great that point. they became. Yeah. Now, all of those things you just said, I think, are, are, are basic outline of the story I'm, I'm trying to, to tell here about what's going, what happened in Philly and how it influenced us, or at least me in particular, and how I apply it to other things that you wouldn't think it can be applied to. But before I get ahead of myself in that department, we're, we're still back mid-80s now, and the Cater Street uh, affair had this concert, and it was a dead end. So somebody tipped off the cops. I don't know how many notes of music were played, but next thing you know... So who all the, was playing this show? I mean, just to kind of... You know, I don't even remember the bands. I know FOD was, was there. I don't think we were scheduled to play. A lot of the younger groups were playing because they hadn't built themselves up enough to open for the Misfits or to open for TSOL like the rest of us had mm-hmm. at that particular point. And the cops just surrounded and swarmed. Batons are swinging. Girls... Teenage girls, heads cracked open, nobody cared. I actually escaped because I was so little, stature-wise, yeah. I ran between a cop's legs and <laughs> got job. out of there. Nobody yeah. even thought to look at me. I was one of the few that escaped around the corner. Other people weren't so lucky, got clobbered, got thrown in police vans, got dumped at the roundhouse. Some got dumped up on North 5th Street and had their long walk home. <laughs> did the cops ask the, the audience to disperse or did they just immediately come in with, with violence? If they mind? did, I was unaware of it. When I looked up, it was like that MDC cover. It was a line of cops with their, their truncheons out. Yeah, yeah, they were coming at us. There was nowhere to go. And guy or girl, you were getting beat down. And this was... It, I believe this riot was so 
it's called a riot. I don't know that it really was it's a riot. It's a police riot. It, it, yeah, it, the was, police it was a, were the ones a who police were attack. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> and, and I believe one of the reasons it's so famous was because it, it was completely unprovoked. Nobody was doing anything wrong. A lot of people got their heads broken open. And it seemed silly that this was a concern of the police that, you know, like with all the other crap going on, why was there this focus on kids with mohawks and Converse sneakers? Yeah, like, who gives a fuck? <laughs> we were not the criminal element back then. Yeah, yeah. Were there any uh, any repercussions from this riot? Uh, that is, did, uh, you know, did press follow up? Did parents who, you know, Not to my knowledge. To it was to... completely like, ah, a bunch of dumb punks, they got what they deserved. Yeah. Other than the fact that a lot of people wrote songs about it, I don't think that it had anything to do with anything. Yeah, that's right, because considering what a litigious society we are now, yeah. and of course there would be lots more media, I mean, that thing would be filmed by everybody with their oh, cell Oh, there'd be support now. groups and Facebook pages yeah, if anything yeah. like that happened. But I don't know that that necessarily would equivalate to real support. It's right. just public support. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. I don't know there'd be anybody actually doing anything. Yeah, people and, typing into their computers. And, yes. and then that's the, you know, I've done something. I typed into my computer. And, and you know, that's going to bring me to our next year, 1985, which I thought was a really important year in, in Philadelphia history. Um, this was when a lot of things started to happen. The, the hardcore scene itself slowly began to diminish and yet grow at the same time. Um, there was a group called BYO, Better Youth Organization. This was youth, helping youth, put on shows for young people. Mm -hmm. Now that's pretty cool. You don't really get that today. And again, BYO was all about do it yourself. And, and if I learned anything growing up in Philadelphia, it was that the punk rock aesthetic from the street of do it to your, yourself would serve me better than any other lessons I ever learned because that's really the way to do it. And today I play classical music. I have my own orchestra, my own classical ensemble, and I'm constantly being told by people, oh, you can't do that, you can't do this, you can't do that. And I'm constantly telling them, you can and I will, mm -hmm. because I learned that the only thing that lets you say you can't is being of that generation that doesn't believe it's possible. And you know, when they said, you can't set up an orchestra in the middle of Laurel Hill Cemetery and put on a concert, there isn't even any power. I said, well, I've seen Philadelphia shows when I was a kid get set up in the middle of a burned out husk of a building that didn't have any power, and 400 people still had a great time that night. Mm -hmm. So don't tell me I can't. Watch me as I do. Yeah, if you have the will to achieve this. That's right. Then it will be. And Philadelphia showed me. BYO showed me. The, the, the Bonehead showed me. Crunch Production showed me. All these people showed me. You don't need all these things. You don't need a lighting director. You don't need a security at the door. like You need people who care and a place to put on a show and some music. And if you've got that, you can do it yourself. And that's what we did back in the 80s. And that's what I still do today, but in a totally different world of classical music. So before we connect that dot, let me take us back to 85. Uh, more and more groups were coming out. Bands were putting out records. Record labels were popping up. Bands from D.C., like we went on tour with The Freeze, and we did this awesome tour, like in the back of a hearse, and... As soon as we get to a city, we jump out on our skateboards, and we'd all. But like, who was who? Who put this together? I mean, what is this with the hearse? Uh, uh, the Freeze toured in a hearse. Okay. And they, 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 I remember they had all their gear and their band in a hearse, and we toured in. I don't know if we toured in a giant Impala. I think we might have toured in a giant Chevy Impala. Mm -hmm. Not positive, but we had our little touring vehicle, and they had their hearse, and we went all over to these little like clubs, and I'm sure there's pictures that exist of all of this stuff. Mm -hmm. yeah, FOD opening for the freeze, 
hundreds of people every show, people buying both of our records and our EPs and our, our T-shirts and our stickers and anything else we had. Mm-hmm. Because that's what people did. They supported you. Much like you see when somebody goes to the Kimmel to see Jethro Tull and they buy a $50 concert shirt. Same concept, but at a totally street level. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And well, what, what facilitated the end of your relationship with FOD? I think what happened was I, I wanted to play more and more and more other styles of music. And FOD was getting more and more popular. And I was spending so much time playing just hardcore. I wanted to expand and get into session work. And I left FOD to play in like six or seven other bands, which I quickly also left because I got a job playing uh, session drums at Electric Ladyland in New York. And I moved to New York. Um, and uh, don't get me wrong, New York. I love New York. New York's great. Love you. Love what, you to Whatever, death. New York. Whatever. But, uh, but I missed Philly. And yeah. I didn't like the New York lifestyle. I didn't like the expense. But I had an awesome paying job. And for... Were you playing on any particular records that were worth the... I played on tons of records, but I was a ghost drummer, which meant basically what happened was from six at night to six in the morning, sometimes I'd sit on a chair and read a book, mm-hmm. and a band would come in. Many famous bands that I can't actually say their names right now, and they would play, and the drummer would be too coked up or not good enough to play to the click track. Man. And the engineer would go, we got it, that's great! You're a rock star. Go home. And the minute he'd leave, they'd bring me in and I'd fix all of his parts. And then the next thing that would happen is I'd do that for a bluegrass band and then a heavy metal band, a quite famous heavy metal band from Philadelphia. I can't say who because that would take all the fun out of it. But let your mind drift back to like 86, 87 (laughs) period and you will... uh, think of a very oh, you'll be famous, able to tell me after the interview yeah, thanks. yeah a very famous rock band that I, I played for because their drummer just wasn't able to do what they needed done in the studio mm-hmm. and I did this for years and it was great and I loved it but I missed Philadelphia there was no sense of camaraderie or you uh, organization or support with the local groups it was really just 40 billion bands playing 40 different clubs and you never knew who was coming what or where you didn't see repeated viewers you didn't you didn't meet people from the audience and i think wow the city's so radically different than philadelphia and i miss philly so i decided to come back to philly now this would be the first time i decided to come back to philly and i'm really glad i did the first thing that happened when i came back to philly was i met sun ra and Sun Ra took me on as his music student. Yeah, how, how do you meet Sun Ra? Okay, I went to the paint- outer space. Yeah, yeah, he just landed in a spaceship <laughs> in my backyard. He said, hi, I'm from Venus. How are you? Uh, no, I, I went to the Painted Bride to see a concert. And the Painted Bride was neat because no barriers. The audience was as close to the band as the band is the audience. They weren't up on a stage or on a pedestal or have security barriers around them. They had this... Philadelphia punk rock aesthetic of you, me, a building and music. That's all we're dealing with Mm -hmm. right here. So I was able to get up out of my seat, my cushion, and walk forward and say, hello, Sun Ra, I'm a huge fan. And Sun Ra was very happy that younger people were getting into his music. This would have been 88. Mm-hmm. He was very happy, or, or maybe eighty-seven. He was very happy that younger people were were getting into his music and and very interested in this. And how was how was he perceived at the at the time? I mean, where was he in his career in terms of people knowing? He was who on he his was? second reinvention. He was just 
pre him re-signing to A&M mm -hmm. and him releasing what would go on to be some of his most famous records. Mm -hmm. And he was re-establishing himself in Philadelphia. He had moved here in Philadelphia in 1978. He had started recording his best work then. Uh, his first record in Philadelphia is called Languidity. And if any of you folks are uh, Sun Ra fans... It was reissued on Evidence, which is a record label from Conchahawken, no less. And uh, I highly recommend Languidity if you want a taste of what Sun Ra's Philly sound was. And Sun Ra lived in Germantown and mainly associated with black people. And here was this like white punk rock kid coming up to him, telling him what a fan he was and how he'd been growing up going to Third Street Jazz and buying white label records of Sun Ra's rehearsal sessions. And Ra was so happy about this that he let me come backstage. Mm -hmm. And my best friend, uh, Bill, was a black guy, and Bill was also a big Sun Ra fan. So they started talking, and Bill came over and said, you know, my friend would really like to take lessons from you, music lessons, instruction lessons. And, and Sun Ra said, well, for what instrument? Was and he I, giving actively giving lessons? No, oh, okay, he was yeah, very selective yeah. about who he even allowed in his house. But my friend kind of bridged this gap, um, and... and Sun Ra said, well, for what instrument? And I said, oh, no, I don't want to learn an instrument from you. I want to learn music from you. And I saw his whole face light up, mm -hmm. and he gave me his address. And I started, until he died, every Saturday doing something like a 9 to 12-hour lesson. I would go to Germantown, and the train would drop me off right, on right around Chu, and I'd walk to his house, and instantly there would always be somebody on the street going, what are you doing here, boy? And somebody else would go, no, 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 he went raw. And they go, oh, cool, go ahead and pass, because Ra was a hero in the neighborhood. Yeah, I guess if people don't know Germantown, Germantown, yeah. not a German town, at least not at the time, but largely black, uh, working class. Working class, poor community. community. Yeah, yeah, poor community, yeah. And Sun Ra, to here, where we are now. And he lived, Sun Ra, a famous jazz musician going all the way back to the 40s, lived in a giant house with most of his band right there in Germantown. And the it was Yeah, the orchestra. And it was rare to see a, a white kid walking through the neighborhood on a Saturday morning or a Sunday morning, depending on when I'm going. It was even more rare that this white kid was going into the Sun Ra house, which yeah. was, he was very, and this wasn't discrimination, folks. This was how pro-black community Sun Ra and his people were. Mm -hmm. that yeah, they were very well respected. Very right? well yeah, respected. Yeah, yeah. They, they started the Black Dollar Movement, you know. Do you want to explain what that is? Uh, yeah, the Black Dollar Movement was uh, black people trying to support black businesses to the black community by keeping the money and income insulated within the bubble of their neighborhood and it worked out really well and Sun Ra wanted to hear my stories about move so now I'm going to jump back in time for a second because I was a punk rock kid living on the street at the time move happened uh, for those other people in my age bracket who might remember move before the bomb dropped we can all agree what a nightmare it was dealing with the move people. Yeah, yeah, yeah they get very little sympathy. And, and they but, yeah, very and, and people seem to forget, yes, what happened was horrible, but what happened before was bad. And as a punk rock kid who had to get a bus in front of their house, I cannot tell you the hundreds of shit-filled diaper bombs that would get launched uh, at us. Yeah. And we'd be like, 
We'd even yell up at them on the roof like, we're little kids, we're punk rock teenagers, we're not the white man you hate so much. But they also hated all of their black their neighbors that exactly. were around them. I think people might forget that, that it wasn't as if it was a race war, but it was That's a right. war against basically everybody that wasn't And moved. do you know why so many people in the neighborhood were angry about well, this? Well, they had the megaphone screaming out The there, megaphone, the screaming, the, the barnyard animals. <laughs> yeah. There was often people with guns on the porch, which, you know, today that's still scary, but back then that was very frightening. Yeah, yeah. And they had a whole, let's get back to the country movement, and the neighborhood was angry because they were like, well, then why are you living in yeah, the, why don't you go to the city country? if you want to be <laughs> yeah. back to the country? So there was a lot of odds with this. It had been a problem building for a while. And one of the inconveniences that I had to suffer was, you know, diaper bombs, which, you know, it was, <laughs> yeah, pretty funny. And, and, what ended up happening was the move movement got so bad with the bunker on the ceiling that our, our mayor dropped a firebomb on them and this firebomb got out of hand and ended up burning down a lot of innocent people's homes. Mm -hmm. It was considered a bad solution to handle a bad problem and it went on to make history. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, Mumia was was involved in it, and this to this day, some people think he's a hero. Some people think he's a criminal. We're not here to discuss politics, but I will tell you the horrible thing that happened afterwards. If you were black and you had dreadlocks, the cops would just beat the shit out of you out of nowhere. Mm -hmm. uh, this was around the time of Abe Stakes. I was living with a, a Rasta named Apollo. He was in his like late 40s, early 50s. Uh, he had giant long dreadlocks. He was very dark-skinned. We were walking to Abe Stakes to go see a show. Cops pulled up, jumped out of the car, pulled out batons, and beat him within an inch of his life didn't even look at me. Him and I walking down the street. White kid mohawk bones in his hair. Yeah. Black guy with dreads. Yeah. He got beat to a pulp. And are these white they cops? They ignored me. White cops. Okay. And though I did see it with black cops. Right, yeah. I mean, because, you know, majority black city, there is a huge number of black people in the police force. I Correct. Think, you know, people may assume that it's all perpetrated. Right, by, but by no, the there, was, there was a lot. And some of them were on the right side of this, and some of them were. Some of them were very against what their, their police in, in arms were doing. And, and to be fair, just so this doesn't seem like a one-sided interview, I've met my share of awesome Philly cops who were great people who didn't want to do anything but protect people and not cause any harm. And I've met my share of Philly cops that just want to beat you up because you're different or whatever. I think that goes for any city. I don't think Philadelphia is special because of that. I think that's there's corruption in any, any form profession. of authority. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. So I don't think Philly gets a, a, a get out of jail free on that. But I do remember that they ignored this white kid and beat the crap out of this black guy and then got in their car and left him there, you know, left him there for dead. And mm -hmm. he wasn't the only guy in that neighborhood who was black with dreadlocks who the cops would just pull over and start beating. At Abe Steaks, which was a famous little hole-in-the-wall steakhouse where mm -hmm. punk bands would play, it was like a, like, a, like a turkey shoot. It was a big rectangle. So when the band on stage was playing... And they were done. Like, let's say it was Scram. Scram played there a lot. Mm -hmm. Scram would get off stage. They'd have to go through the crowd with their gear to get out. Mm -hmm. And then the next band would have to go through the crowd with their gear to set up. So turnover time between bands was very long. Mm -hmm. 
And because of that, we would go across the way to Lips Lickin' Soul Food, the best soul food in the city, and we would eat our dinners. Which I and imagine is no longer there. I can't imagine it is, but they had a, for those folks who might remember, they had a delivery <laughs> van with giant lips on a spring that was on top. <laughs> it was fantastic. comical to see. And, and Lips Lickin' Soul Food would, would cater to us punk kids, and I can remember sitting in there with one or two of my black friends, like Bobby, who had dreads and cops coming in dragging them off the stool bringing them out to the street and just beating them your move i'm not move i'm i'm in a band playing over your move shut the fuck up and pow 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 jesus christ so we had that and when i was now jumping into the late 80s sunra wanted to hear all about these firsthand experiences and a very rare thing happened he asked me to come be his music student that's rare no matter what skin color you are Mm -hmm. extremely rare to be a young white male and be invited by sunra to do this and my lessons were everything. They covered music theory, composition, arranging, composing, practicing, the Bible, the Urantia book, the Omniverse, the Universe, his travels in, to Saturn. We'd have, by <laughs> hours, broken down. Now we're just going to read from the Bible for this hour. And after that, we're going to talk about hand technique for percussion. And after that, we're going to talk about how to arrange for this. And these lessons would go all night. And then when he was done, a member of the orchestra named Atakatun would take over. And Atakatun was the kunga player. And I was getting into African drumming at the particular time and wanted to learn real African drumming, not, not, not just... Nito playing along to like, you know, a conga track on the Stones record. I, I wanted yeah, yeah. to learn authentic African drumming. And Atakatun would then take over my lesson and teach me African drumming, hand drumming. And then we'd end the lesson by me going to a nearby park. Now, I don't remember what the park was called, but it was right there on Germantown and Chew, not very far. And there'd be like 10 congueros sitting there all night playing. And, you know... At first, they were always like, whoa, what's the little white guy with the kunga doing here? But they'd see a Takatoon, he'd say I was raw student. Next thing you know, I'd spend every Saturday night playing with these straight from Cuba, straight from West Africa, straight players, and I'd learn techniques. And that started me, one, abandoning drum set and learning hand percussion, mm-hmm. which started, I guess, the next chapter of my life, which was running E-Tribe, which was a 17-piece punk funk band that instead of guitars and keyboards all the melodies were played on kungas uh timbales bongos i mean we had drum set we had bass and we had keyboards but it was about the structure of these traditional african latin afro-cuban rhythms against music you could dance to and now that we were in the um we're heading into the 90s now, you know, jam Wait, I, gotta, I gotta stop you for just a second. I just gotta have a few quick sure. Sun Ra questions absolutely. instead of my own. Yeah, absolutely. Own interest. Then did you pay him for these lessons or what was the... I, I, I paid $20 <laughs> for a nine-hour Saturday lessons wow. that went up until he died. Even, even after he had had three strokes, Sun Ra still could talk communicate. He even invented a new way to play keyboards. At that, his last stroke, he couldn't stand, but he tilted his keyboard sideways, put in percussion sound effects, and had a whole new approach to his music that way. God damn. The $20 would often be used at the end of the night to pull together money for rice and beans to cook for the entire or- orchestra. Oh, they'd have great. a big dinner. What, what was he like uh, personally? I mean, you know, 
he was from space, and he had he seemed to have a lot of interest. In, you know, seemed to be a very peculiar character. But I don't know much about him, him the man or the person, mm-hmm. in, in how he communicated mm-hmm. with you. You know, was was there a, a grounded element to him as well as the more spiritual or? or yes basic? and no. He was the sweetest, most soft-spoken pussycat of a man I've ever met in my life. He was so easily likable and, 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 and so humorous that you instantly liked him. And after a while, you got past the fact that every now and again, he'd say something like, well, when I was a kid growing up on Saturn and, and, I mean, and not miss a beat. Like, he, he really believed he grew up on Saturn? or uh, You know, that's a good question. I, I it, With Sun Ra, and this was actually part of the lessons that he would give me, it was called perpetuating the myth was our our topic for an hour and it was where does the myth end and the truth begin and where does the truth become the myth and where does the myth recycle back and actually become a self-fulfilling prophecy so you know no one really got a line on whether Sun Ra really thought he was from Saturn Mm -hmm. he knew that he started with Fletcher Henderson he knew that he was in Chicago um, and there's a great story of Sun Ra that I think is relevant to anyone who might be listening to this interview. You're never too old to do anything. Sun Ra was 45 years old when he sat down to record his first album. Wow. An age where most people's recording career is over. Mm-hmm. He was just beginning. Before he died, he recorded over 100 records. Legit records. Yeah, yeah. So you could be 45 and your whole new life could be happening for you. He didn't know at 44, yeah. He didn't know at 44 that he was going to record 100 records as Sun Ra. He was Sonny Ra playing piano in Fletcher Henderson's group. And, you know, he talked about that. He talked about Alabama and he talked about things like that. But then, well... The problem with the universe is uni means one. It's an omniverse. And this would effortlessly get blended into his conversations right. about how good the red beans and rice we were eating was. So Fair after enough. a while, you got used to it. He was a very nice guy, very soft-spoken. Unlike me, he would take his time when he spoke and everything would be very slow to make you listen to every word. And he had such a welcoming warm laugh that you couldn't help but like it and the members of the orchestra were a non-stop comedy team my friend bill who i mentioned was black and he was very good looking and and uh, there was a girl in his group who had been with him forever named june and I, I can remember like gilmore and and marshall allen cracking jokes going like hey june i bet you wish this guy saw you when you were young and hot instead of old and fat right and, and you know everybody would start laughing and cracking up they had this band camaraderie that I used to witness with punk bands, that I used to experience myself with punk bands. We're going to pick on you, but we love you to death, and we're never going to cross the line, yeah. and we're not going to make a fool of you in front of strangers. A little ball-breaking. Yeah, That's fun. yeah. But, but ball-breaking with a limit, a ball, with a respect limit right, right, of yeah, yeah. never making a fool out of you right, yeah. at the expense of your dignity. Right. And is, what did their house look like, uh, or his house? It was great. Uh, The living room in particular, which is where I spent most of my time doing the lessons, you walk in and you made a left into this giant living room that was filled with all the knickknacks and tinfoil stuff you could imagine he ever used as a stage prop. Mm -hmm. And then you go down the hallway and there was a kitchen and the kitchen was just packed with food because they were cooking and feeding like 80 people at a time. And then you upstairs were the individual rooms. Mm -hmm. The band often used to practice in the giant living room where Sun Ra had all of his head pieces and towards the very end, 
the last time I saw Sun Ra before he left. Sun Ra did not die. He just went home. Mm -hmm. Before he went home, the last experience I had with Sun Ra was he had just recorded his final album. It was called Mayan Temples. And he invited me over to his house to give a listen. He had just gotten the CD to listen to. And it was his best work. And he had debuted some of this stuff like a week earlier at the Painted Bride. And we sat down and he was to my right in his chair. And it was me and I think a Takatoon and I think Gilmore. Just, just, just the four of us. Mm -hmm. And we sat and we didn't say a word and we listened to this record from top to bottom. And when it was over, nobody said anything. And I didn't want to be the first to break the silence, but I turned to him and I said, I said, Ra, that's the best thing you've ever done. And he looked at me and he squinted at his eyes and he said, I'm glad you think so. And he got up, which was hard for him to do at the time. He could barely move. And he leaned forward and that meant that he wanted something. And a Takatoon went over there and he took the CD of Mayan Temples out of the player, gave it to Ra, and Ra handed it. He said, you take it. I don't need it. And he left shortly thereafter. Wow. And to this day, I still have that CD at the end of my Sun Ra collection is the Fantastic. final thing. So he was wonderful, and the house was great, and it was filled with laughter, and he'd run rehearsals so bizarre, and he taught me how to run rehearsals. And then when I formed my first group, E-Tribe, with all the percussionists, mm -hmm. I knew how to run a large group. I knew how to let the drums take over the melody, because Sun Ra had taught me that. And, you know, it was this great opportunity, and I, I didn't realize at the time it was special to me but I didn't realize that all these years later I'd still be very happy and proud that that special magic moment in history happened mm -hmm. and because of this I went on and I ran E-Tribe now we're into the 90s now Sun Ra passed 93 I believe it was and E-Tribe began our life as jam bands were becoming popular and we started to play everywhere and at this point it was where does a band come up and I used to say gee it wasn't like it was when I was a kid where there was all these love halls and and all these places where you could get gigs mm -hmm. and hundreds of people would come see you now you got to do this circuit and like maybe 200 people will come see you mm -hmm. maybe 400 people will come see you and there wasn't much of a circuit to play these type of things and if there was like Dobbs which was still around and still catering to the local scene mm -hmm. like they still do today hooray Dobbs if anyone from Dobbs is listening thank you for supporting Philadelphia music oh I don't know for what five decades now you guys are <laughs> right. awesome anyway um, so what we had was no places to play and if there were places to play like Dobbs I couldn't fit my 17 people up mm -hmm. And once again, the Philadelphia DIY aesthetic came into place. I had a gig paying the bills, playing Dumbek for the belly dancers at the Middle East restaurant. And I struck up, which at the time I didn't realize, but has gone on to be a lifelong friendship with the Tyune brothers mm -hmm. and the Tyune family. And I would play three times a night for the belly dancers. And, you know, we'd get our little paycheck and a meal. And the Tyune families treated us like gold. And I said, you know, I can't find a place to play. And I sat Pops Tyune down and I said, what if we ever put on a concert here? And, you know, he was like, oh, absolutely not. You can't do that. You've got to move these tables. Yeah. And again, that's that DIY in Philly. Like, you have no idea how little uh, 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 obstacle that really yeah, is. The tables, yeah. If I brought in people yeah. and I moved the tables and I gave you like half the door, like, well, we'll see. Huge success. Hundreds of people came. Place packed up. No damage to the restaurant. And he's going, my goodness, I made just as much money, if not more money doing this than I did on my having my restaurant. Mm -hmm. You could do it again. 
and you could do it again, and you could do it again, and it started to get so big, well, we can't fit the people downstairs now. I got this whole upstairs nobody's using. Mm-hmm. Why don't you do that? And next thing you know, lots of money made. So, oh, well, I'll put in a stage. Mm-hmm. Lots of money made. I'll put in like a little ticket booth and a turnstile, and lots of money made. I'll put another bar up there. And this became what started off as a Middle East restaurant, became one of the biggest concert venues. It became the Middle yeah, East. The Middle East. Yeah, the yeah, Middle yeah, East. Yeah, yeah, the and big... it got so big, they opened the third floor, Prism bought it, they started to put bands up there and put them on television mm-hmm. because it was so equipped. And we'd sit, we'd tell the story all the time. It started off with me playing Dumbek for the belly dancers and asking Pop Styoon if he'd let us move a few tables. DIY, Philadelphia mentality mm-hmm. from the streets, the hardcore punk rock. You don't need all this other BS. You need good music, a place to put it on, and people to come see it. Right. And E-Tribe became really popular at that point. So can I stop and ask you for a time check? Uh, yes. Oh, it, I'm sorry. It's a uh, 1.35. Uh, okay. I just wanted to make sure that you... Yeah, absolutely. So, Because I'm trying to pace the story so that we get to the end. Yeah, I'm more than happy to talk. I just don't want you to wind up having to get it cut. Yeah, no, no, no. We're, go- we're good, so I'm glad yeah. I checked the time. So uh, where we're at now is... E-Tribe's playing all over Philadelphia. We're playing the Middle East. Middle East is becoming huge. Um, Jam bands, everything else like that is happening, and it's really awesome. And I'm in Philly, and Philadelphia is once again showing this incredible support. I don't remember doing a show for less than 400 people Mm -hmm. in the seven years we were a group. Just like with FOD, I I don't remember doing a show for less than 400 people. I'm sure we did. But every show we ever did was hundreds of hundreds of people. You'd look out and, you know, see so many people, many of which you knew. And if you didn't know them, you wanted to go meet them. You wanted, who are you? What are you doing here? You know, yeah, if they're at that event, event there's got to be something interesting. Some connection. Them. And Philadelphia was very accepting in this particular community and was, was a community. Maybe perhaps still is. Hard to tell. But... E-Tribe did all these shows, played this circuit. We started playing bigger and bigger clubs. We started playing New York. Next thing you know, we're in the village all the time and we're doing gigs there. And we had a great run, seven years. But electronic music came around and I was DJing and I said, electronic music is the way of the future. And in 1997, I was right. Next thing you know, gone are the bands. Gone are big jam bands. Gone are people like us and Groove Collective where there's 19 people on stage. Mm-hmm. And on stage now was two people, the Chemical Brothers, four people, the, the Prodigy. These DJs and electronic sounds were becoming the next band. It was very punk rock to me because it was against everything that existed. Mm-hmm. Why did punk rock ever form? Let's, let's, let's put this out as a sociological experiment. Now, I'm not claiming I'm right here, but... Rock and roll had overblown. Prog rock had gotten to the excess of entire sides of records as one songs. You'd go see Yes, and it was like, you know, every song was a half an hour. And, you know, had to do with concepts. You had Genesis and Yes milking these prog concepts. And I, I like them. I'm not against them. And out of that rebellion also came, well, what about us folks that want a snappy little... 120 BPM dance beat that we can shake our butt to to the local girl at the discotheque and we want stupid simple songs Mm -hmm. and we had disco and out of this well here's prog rock for these people and here's simple disco music for these people what about us we don't like this and out of this need is where I believe punk rock grew Mm -hmm. this we don't need 
to play seven string basses. We don't need elaborate light shows. We don't need half an hour songs. Mm -hmm. And we don't need stupid little disco beats that got to end at three three minutes and 20 seconds and talk about like where the hand claps go. Mm -hmm. We want something in between that. It doesn't matter if our attitude's bad. It doesn't matter if we can play our instruments. And I believe that's how punk rock grew. And again, I saw that happen in the late 90s where I said, Everyone's sick of these, like the slow rap bands with the like live instrumentation and the jam bands. Mm-hmm. We had had this for seven or eight years, and out of this grew the need of something radical and different. And here came electronic music. Guys in plastic tracksuits with mohawks and mascara, rap screaming. It was metal, it was punk, it was rap against a background of electronic music we had never heard before that was so much more than the disco era brought to us. And we're heading steadfast into the 21st century. This is going to be the future. Mm-hmm. Did you feel that this was happening on a DIY level as well? I did, and I also knew we were going to blink and it was going to be international. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to go electronic, and I did. And I put together an electronic group called Global Transmission. And as I predicted, not popular in America, got signed in Europe, did the whole rave thing. And here we are, DJing raves and, and, and playing electronic music in underground raves in Italy that were once subway stations that were mm-hmm. abandoned and it felt and were abandoned and it felt just like the old Love Hall days. Hundreds of kids that are there for the music. We barely got enough power to run the joint. Mm-hmm. We'll be lucky if everyone gets paid. Chuck knew me. Chuck Meehan used to say he had a dance he did when everybody got paid. He'd do that everyone get <laughs> oh, paid see dance. That dance so bad. Yeah, and 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 you know, it was one of those cases where we'd go there, well, I hope everyone's dancing tonight and I hope we all get paid tonight and it was they just say you in ecstasy, just bring a giant bag of yeah, ecstasy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That happened a lot, actually. And we often did get paid in drugs, and we got paid in euro dollars and all kinds of free room and board and stuff like that. And it reminded me, FOD would tour back in the day, and we'd spend the night in some girl's four floors up fire escape apartment, sleeping in the middle of her living room floor. And we, we didn't know who she was. Mm-hmm. She put us up for the night. Yeah. But that's how it was done. Mm-hmm. And way back when, in the days of the West Side Club, Jeff used to put Who's Could Do up before they became really big. You know, they were just a band coming through, playing his grunting, grungy basement for 100 people, and he put them up for the night, sleeping on his sofa. And, and that's how things were done. And here we are in 1999, and, and it's a radically different music in a completely different country, but we're seeing the same general common denominators here. Mm-hmm. And this DIY of putting on a rave that went all night that had 10 bands was just like putting on a punk rock concert that went all night that had 10 bands. Mm-hmm. And it was do it yourself. It was here you are. And you need people and a place and like minds and a band. And that's all you need. And electronic music had a short but powerful lifespan. And it burned out. And it got replaced by these cookie cutter going back to the days of pop music as a disposable commodity. The one hit wonder that was on top of the world on January in 1963. Mm-hmm. And was, who are they? By July 1963. And you probably never heard from them again by February 1964. Mm-hmm. Pop music had become disposable commodities of faceless entities and bands didn't matter and songs didn't matter. And it was all about the American Idol mentality. Mm-hmm. And that's it seems where- like a constant shuffle. So yeah. it's just, it's just, it is music. 
is coming into your ears, but it's not defined as this is the artistic work of this individual. You know, exactly, and electronica had run its course. Big beat, lounge, trip hop, digital acid hardcore. fusion, digital hardcore. Yeah. I, I became very friendly with the guys in Atari Teenage yeah. Riot. We, we did a lot of shows with Alan them, and Empire. it was... And it was the same concept. It was like, we're, we're doing punk rock for the digital. Yeah. Now, my band at the time, we weren't quite as hard as that. We, we were a little bit more dancey and, and Chemical Brothers-y. But there was still was this whole big attitude. And when, you know, there was a local radio station at the time called um, Y100. And they said, you know, we'd, we'd like you to play a gig, but we don't know how you're going to do it with all this gear. And again, the Philadelphia DIY attitude. Show us the place. Well, it's mm -hmm. called Brownies. And... We'll get there, we'll bring in our PA system, and that's what we did. We brought in our own PA system, all these consoles of gears, our own lighting show. We put on a show just like we did raves in, in other countries. And we put on the show for Philadelphia, and you know, people like, oh, how did you pull this off? And we'd be like, the DIY aesthetic that the punk rock scene taught us all could work mm -hmm. in the 80s is what I'm applying here in in the, the late 90s early 2000s to a totally different crowd to a totally different generation same common denominator did you record as this unit yeah 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 we actually we put out one record and we got dropped before the second record was released mm -hmm. um and we, you know, we were trip-hop big beat dance electronica and and it was fun and then that stopped and because we were electronica i had seen a lot of electronic acts that I grew up loving, like Kraftwerk and, and, and Jean-Michel Jarre. Mm. And when I went to go see Jean-Michel Jarre, he stood on stage for three minutes and he waved his hands in front of these antennas and he made music. And it was one of the most profound moments of my life and I had no understanding why. Mm -hmm. It's like something's happening here, but I don't know why this is important. My first reaction was, what kind of bullshit is that? Talk about a carny and a huckster. This is a magic trick. Am I supposed to believe that he's making that music uh -huh. by just waving his hands around in the air? And within three minutes, I ran the, the gauntlet of emotions until the last three minutes. I was like, he's completely doing that. I have no explanation why. I need to know what that, that is. Mm -hmm. And then my life turned into like a Three Stooges routine. <laughs> me calling every single connection I had in the music industry and going... It's a box, it's got antennas, you stand in front of it, you wiggle your hands around, and it, it made noise. Mm -hmm. Sure it did. <laughs> what type of drugs were you on? I said, no, 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 it wasn't that at all. It was like a real instrument. Of course, this instrument I'm referring to is the theremin. Mm -hmm. But way back here in the early 2000s, that name wasn't nearly as popular as it is today. Today we see it on The Simpsons. Today we see it on The Big Bang Theory. Today we see it on American Coven. It's not as unheard of an, an mm -hmm. instrument as it was back when I first started asking. And no one knew what I was talking about. And I ran into the old sound man from E-Tribe. And he said, I believe what you're you're." talking about it's called a theremin mm -hmm. and believe it or not it was like the world's first electronic instrument ever invented and it goes all the way back to the 20s but nobody knows how to play them and no one knows what it is so good luck with that and i was like well how do you think i can i could get one he goes well i don't know there, there aren't really companies making them because at this point there really wasn't companies mm -hmm. making them he said why don't you call robert moog 
And is he callable? And, and I was like, can I? And he was like, well, he's in the phone book. Here's his phone number. So I called him up and he answered the phone. And, what is, what is and I was like, like, hi, Mr. Moog. You don't know me, but I just saw Jean-Michel Jarre play this instrument called a Thurman. And I'd like to get one made because I'd like to play opera on it. Now, why, did, why was it opera that you decided that you wanted? Okay. Great question. You're actually the first person who's ever asked me that. Because going all the way back to the beginning of my story, before I was even into punk rock, I grew up in this musical family where classical and opera and rock and jazz were all played during the day. We didn't differentiate. Mm -hmm. So... I heard just as much opera as I heard Led Zeppelin and Jimi Hendrix growing up. Mm -hmm. And then at a time where we could go from Dead Kennedys to Motorhead to Mozart to, you know, Pergolesi's Stabat Mater. And this was all just good music. It was just all different. It was all moods. I remember listening to the Minutemen and then listening to the Magic Flute. All like in the same day. I remember double nickels on the dime and sitting down and listening to the entire Magic Flute. It was just great music to me. Mm -hmm. And I grew up loving opera. And I felt that this instrument sounded like an opera singer. Now today I'm, I'm well known because I make the instrument sound like an opera singer. But from day one, I always thought the instrument sounded like an opera singer. I don't feel that I'm making a Thurman imitate an opera singer, I feel that opera singing sounds a lot like a theremin. Mm -hmm. So when I told Robert Moog that, hey, you know, my ears growing up on opera, I hear this as an opera singer, no one's ever done that, his very first response was he laughed at me. And he said, you know, I'll think about it. And then he got back to me and he said, okay, I'm going to build you one. Good luck with this. Mm -hmm. And he built me a little handmade affair. I still have it. Um, and Big Briar started to manufacture the Etherwave Pro and I bought one of them. And I had it set up on the side of our electronic act as a novelty. I would occasionally walk over. I had it going through a delay and a wah-wah pedal. And mm -hmm. I'd occasionally walk over and give it the old woo against yeah. the big electronic beats. And, and I noticed after every show, we had very, very attractive women in this group. And they mm -hmm. were badass leaders of the stage. One played congas. One was a lead singer. Ferocious, and the lines to talk to them after our concerts would be huge. Uh -huh, right. And I noticed my lines started to get bigger, and I couldn't understand why because I was in the back running all the sequencers and the live turntables and everything else. And I had taken my punk rock aesthetics and experiences, my growing up in a huge musical family. For a while, I paid the bills doing being a DJ, and I learned to battle DJ. Mm -hmm. And I took all these skills and pushed them together and put put them into this group, and I noticed my lines started to get longer than the girls' lines, and it was only because so many people wanted to know, at one moment, you stood in front of that box, and they went through the same thing I went through. They thought it was fake, but then they realized it was real, and what is this? Is this new? What do you mean it's almost 100 years old? How come I've never heard of this? And I noticed that, wow, this is really popular. So when electronic music died and we lost our label, we couldn't continue on because electronic music wasn't really popular anymore mm. like that. So I didn't know what else to do. I didn't want to stop playing live. And I had been living in studios doing song publishing. I had a career for a long time uh, writing ghost songs for people, doing music publishing for people. I, I liked songwriting for a while. I did pop songs. I wrote a, a wine commercial uh, in France that still airs today. It's like a silly pop song, very Chardet kind of thing. And I did all these things, but it kept me in the studio and I was missing that connection 
that I first experienced in the punk rock world of getting up on stage and playing music for people. That first experience of getting up in front of Minor Threat and playing for hundreds of people was something that now I didn't get anymore and I was missing it. Mm -hmm. So I decided to start, I packed up my theremin and I went, traveled throughout Europe and I started to play. I played in churches in Italy, I played in churches in France. Just you and Just me by myself and the theremin. And everywhere I went, People said, this is beautiful. This I've never heard anything like it. And I said, you know, maybe I'm on to something here. I knew this novelty instrument that I got for just one second to play was going to be fun. Mm-hmm. I realized as soon as I got it that playing opera was going to be very difficult. So I just used it for effects. But I started to get better and the years grew on and I practiced more. And I started to actually start to execute real opera on it. Mm-hmm. So here I am touring solo. And... My family's Italian, and in, in, in any Italian family, and I'm sorry to perpetuate the stereotype, but you have someone who's in charge. Mm-hmm. You have a godfather or godmother. You want to get married, you want to get divorced, you need their blessing. You have to go through everything with them. MFIC, motherfucker in charge. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and, and mine was what we called our mother kin. Her name was uh, Gina Varuni, and she was in charge of our family. And I was one of her favorites for whatever reason. She really liked me and was always very close to me. And I was touring throughout Europe playing this and and I got a call that she was on her deathbed and to come back to America because our family was so close. She wanted she 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 they wanted me to be near her. Now she had been comatose for like three weeks and it didn't look like she was going to make it much longer. She hadn't spoken a word. She was very out of it, and she wasn't communicating. We didn't think she was going to hang on much longer and to make it back to America. And I came back to America, and she had passed away before I made it back home, like by a day. Mm -hmm. And I went to the funeral, and my family pulled me aside, and they said, we want to share a really weird story with you. And I said, you know, what? And they said, well, you know, what, what were you doing that it took you so long? I said, I was doing shows in, in, in Europe. I said, I was in Italy, I was in France, and I'm, I'm playing this unusual instrument. And I was thinking about how I wanted to turn this into a career when I got the call. And I got the first flight available, but she left before I could get here. And they said, well, right before she left, a very weird thing happened. And this is where the interview gets spooky. <laughs> um, she sat up for the first time in, I think they said, three or four days and looked around and started making sentences and the family was floored because like we thought she was ready to die Mm -hmm. and here she was she sat up and she said in italian where am i where where was where am i Mm -hmm. and they were like oh that's funny you say that we contacted him he's on his way and she said no 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 he's not on his way we were just in italy and her daughter said, Mom, what do you mean? She goes, we were just in Italy. We were walking through the streets of Florence. Mm-hmm. And I, everyone was calling him Mano Divina. Why were they calling him Mano Divina? Mm-hmm. And she said, no, Mom, you weren't in? That was in your mind. You weren't really in Florence with him. He's on a plane coming here. And you've been in this hospital bed for like weeks. She said, no, no, no. I was just walking with him. And everyone was calling him Mano Divina. And she closed her eyes and she laid down and she died. Wow. I didn't know this until the funeral, and I had just, on my way to the funeral, I was talking to my sound engineer guy who had helped me find out what this instrument was, contact Moog, and and I said, you know, I'm thinking about doing this as an act, as, as, as like a career. I said, I'd have to put together another group, and I'd have to come back to America to do it, and I'm not really sure I need like some kind of like 
green light from the universe to get this. And mm -hmm. then I heard this story at our funeral and they said, yeah, my whole family pulled me aside. They're like, we're so freaked out. Does this mean anything? Just, I've never heard those words before in my life. I have no idea what this is talking about. I said, but it's weird because I actually was in Italy. Mm -hmm. And when, when you called me, so I don't know how she was walking with me through the streets or why people were calling me this name. What does it mean? Mm -hmm. And they said, you know, it means exactly as it interprets. It means the divine hand of God. Then mm -hmm. I said, well, that's unusual that people would be calling me this. And my friend and sound man and, and pal for decades turned to me and he said, there's your act. You want to do anything, you should call yourself Mono Divina. You should put together a group and you should play this divine music and see, like, was just some vision that she had? Was this just a coincidence? Which I personally don't believe. Sun Ra taught me you don't believe in coincidences. The universe is seldom that lazy to believe in a coincidence. Mm -hmm. But uh, he said everything is connected through synchronicity, whether you understand it at any level or not. And what ended up happening was my friend said that, that there, that's your act. That's what you should go. And I said, yeah, you're right. We should go by the divine hand. Mm -hmm. And everyone in my family, because of the story, now started to call me Mono Divina. So I became Mono Divina and I changed my name to Mono Divina and I put together a classical group. And now the group is called the Divine Hand Ensemble. You can see all about what we do at divinehand.net. And now I play Thurman mainly opera arias, while backed by an eight-piece classical group. And you would think this would now be as night and day from the punk rock aesthetic that I grew up and have shared the story with, and it's not. It's exactly the same. Every lesson I learned in D DIY land, every lesson I learned from those promoters putting on those shows taught me that there is no obstacles and music genres have nothing to do with it. Now I live in a world of playing classical music where the girls wear gowns and the guys wear tuxedos, where we sell tickets in advance, mm -hmm. where we play for all ages of people. And my group, because of my background, set out to break every taboo in classical world. If we're going to do this, let's do it different than every classical. I do not want... An, an, an older orchestra in tuxedo sitting on the edge. I want young, vibrant musicians. I want to interpret rock songs and redo them in, in classical interpretations and reinterpret classical inter songs and reinterpret them as well. And my group being classical, we started with our Mozarts and our Beethovens and our Bachs. And then next thing you know, we're doing Dead Kennedys and Flipper and Rush and Queen and the Stickman. We just did a orchestral version of, uh, of um, uh, oh God, I'm slipping on, on the title right now, on Funky Hayride mm -hmm. for the uh, all-star monster ball that we played at the Trocadero. So we started taking things that classical bands don't do and mm -hmm. doing them. So all the other members are of a like-minded wanting to... to yeah, I work with very, very young, very modern, like-minded people. I auditioned specifically not to hire your standard cookie-cutter classical musician who's going to tell me, well, I, I, I can't possibly play this show without a monitor because, mm -hmm. like, again, I wanted more of the DIY aesthetic. Mm -hmm. And they're very like-minded, and, and they thought I was absolutely insane when I first sat them down. I said, guys, we're going to break every rule that's out there. 
We're going to be the most non-classical classical group in the world. And yeah, I know this sounds crazy, but we're not shooting for the Kimmel Center. I don't think classical music should always be on this pedestal. I grew up my life loving classical music. I could go see the Dead Kennedys. I could go see Santana. I couldn't afford to go see the orchestra. Mm -hmm, yeah. That was $100 a ticket, and my 15-year-old self couldn't afford it. My $25 self couldn't afford it. My 35-year-old self could barely afford it. Yeah, yeah. This was not something that made it accessible to me. And maybe that's why you don't see many young people at a classical concert, because you're not appealing to their budget. Yeah, we were talking about this earlier before we did the the, act, the interview proper, uh, and sometimes it seems as if the orchestra re tries to reach out by performing music from video games or something for the kids, or as you were saying, the music of uh, ABBA or something. Yes, to, but, to appeal but, to young people. Yeah, but I think your point about the cost is, is really uh, integral to, to why a lot of people maybe don't gravitate towards them, because I love classical music, but I can rarely go. It's a very special event, and I always enjoy it, but... It can be prohibitively expensive, and I think that that's what keeps most people, not just young people, but working people, you know, Nailed not it. all just the affluent, to see the museum piece performed. Uh, you know, it, it seems like there, there's almost like a period to the end of the sentence of classical music, and then it's constantly reiterating the same thing. And yet, here's the only musical genre we know that survived hundreds of years and countless social changes, musical changes, instrumental changes, and never went away. There's a reason for that, because it's powerful and it's beautiful and it moves people. Punk rock was popular because we could identify the anger emotion that we could share about what we didn't like about Ronald Reagan, about what we didn't like about the Star Wars program. I'm talking about the actual nuclear defense and missile defense as opposed to the movies. What we didn't like about the world we were handed as kids to now take over. And then in the 90s, you had groups like Marilyn Manson where this, it was an anger, a rebellion that you don't know what you're exactly mad about, but you know you're mad and you can identify with it. Now here's classical music, this beautiful music that's moved people. We don't know why, but we know it does. And you nailed it perfectly. You'd love to see more of it. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's why young people don't because who can afford $100 a ticket? Yeah, I can't. So what you ended up have, have happening was this big wedge came in between people. And you know what did I just say about Sun Ra? I could get up off my cushion and go walk up to Sun Ra and say, mm -hmm. hey, I could get up out of my chair and go walk up to Jello Biafra and say, hey, can't do that with the classical. I can't walk up to the oboe player and say, that was one of the most magical solos I ever heard mm -hmm. because he's on a pedestal and he's way far away. He doesn't want to talk to that right, right. guy in the audience. So I wanted to break all these, these walls down and I had the tools and the know-how based on the story I've told you mm -hmm. of my past to do it. So I told my group, we're gonna break all these rules. We're gonna do rock songs into classical instead of the Kimmel stage. We're gonna play clubs. We're gonna play rock places. We've played the truck. We've played the underground arts. We've played four years in a row in the middle of the Laurel Hill Cemetery. And the first thing I hear from people in the classical world is, you can't do that. You know, I heard that in the 90s. 
I heard it in the 80s. I heard it with punk rock. I heard it with jam bands. I heard it with electronica. People constantly telling you you can't yeah, do something. Easily disproved when you just proceed to do it. Yeah, yeah. And, and, instead and, of and, then, exp- and then it has been done. Exactly. It's so much easier to do than to explain why. Mm-hmm. So when classical folks are being snobby, like, oh, well, I need a four-hour sound check, and you know, I need a technician to come and tune my instrument. Why? Are you incapable of tuning your instrument mm-hmm. to yourself? Or are you just so used to your lifestyle that... We started to break all these taboos. We did what Sun Ra taught me. Music's for everybody. Doesn't matter. You don't have to like jazz to like Sun Ra. Matter of fact, a lot of punk kids went to Sun Ra having no idea or owning one bop record in their collection. Mm -hmm. And we started to play as the divine hand and break these taboos. And more importantly, bring classical music down to the street level where people who might like it could afford it and find out for themselves. Mm-hmm. And after four years of doing it, next thing you know, come to one of our concerts. You will see a 24-year-old girl with a black mohawk, facial piercings covered in tattoos, sitting right next to a 80-year-old lady with blue hair and her husband in a gown and a tuxedo. And they're both here for two totally different styles of music. She's here to watch us do Edward Scissorhands and the music from Nightmare Before Christmas mm-hmm. and um, you know Rush songs and spooky horror themes like Dario Argento medleys. And they're here to watch us do opera arias and Beethoven and chamber music. And yet the classical folks are just as into our version of the, the uh, um, Tim Burton movies mm-hmm. and, and Ed, I mean... Um, Danny Elfman's compositions and the kids are learning oh well I like that Beethoven piece and I like that Mozart piece and then we bring in the funerary music which no one's ever heard this is music that was written in the 1300s for the dead only and we no pun intended resurrected it brought it back to the stage and we perform it and people are fascinated I've never heard music like this well you wouldn't have Mm -hmm. because it was written for the dead Mm -hmm. not for the living and it didn't have to follow the rules and the confines of classical music as the living have to. And people started to hear classical music in graveyards and in nightclubs at the Sellersville Theater. We just played a concert at the Troc stage. That's our second appearance on the Troc stage. You know, there's never been a classical group that played the Troc stage. We opened for the Peekaboo Review, a burlesque show. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there was a lot of concern. Are people going to like this? As cla-? And they loved it. it it's different. It's it vital and people. dynamic. Music, I think, would have a universal appeal if, if the people get it into their ears because it is vital and dynamic. That's right. And it's lasted longer than any other musical mm-hmm. genre. So give it a chance to be heard. You can't give it a chance to be heard if you're putting people up on a stage and you can't get out of your seat and walk up and say, that was beautiful. I loved it. Mm-hmm. Thank you. I hope you come to another one of my concerts like Sun Ra did for me. That reach out and communicate with the artist mm-hmm. seemed to have gone Everyone's up on giant stage with securities and barriers, not just classical, rock and roll, even punk rock. Oh, yeah, sure. And, and, and I find it sad that all these things that made the audience and the musician connect are all gone today mm. when we live in an increasingly isolated world of, of social media where we don't get to make these connections with these musicians. And all day long, all month long, all year long, all I hear is classical people constantly telling me, you can't do that. Mm-hmm. You, what do you mean you're going to play the underground art? You can't do that. And I thank them. Thank you. Because every time somebody tells me I can't do something, right. it's just checking my math that I can. And if Philadelphia's hardcore 
punk rock aesthetic growing up taught me mm -hmm. anything. It doesn't matter whether it's classical or punk. It doesn't matter if it's second in Bainbridge in a burned out loft with one light bulb or a giant concert at the Underground Arts or one of the biggest churches in Philly. What you need is a place, music, and people to hear it. And that's all that matters. Mm -hmm. And if I've learned one thing about growing up punk rock in Philadelphia, it's that those lessons can be applied, don't let anyone tell you they can't, across anything you want. And for as much as classical people today poke fun of the divine hand for being, for slumming it, as they call, mm -hmm. we bring it to the people on the street who can afford it. We don't bring it to the 80-year-old supporter who has a name on a bench who has doesn't bat an eye at a $150 price ticket. We bring it to those people who are like, I like classical music. This is only 20 bucks, and this group's going to be pretty hip while they do it. Mm -hmm. And that's what the Divine Hand's all about. And that's the what made me wanting to do this interview so exciting for me because no one can understand how you can connect the dots mm -hmm. from the punk rock mentality to running a classical group today and yet to me they're identical. Mm -hmm. So thank you for giving me this chance, Loud Fast Philly, to connect these dots and for once, maybe the first time ever, get it out on record that classical music and punk rock are really the same thing when it comes to delivering music to an audience and making it affordable. That's why there was 500 people at Love Hall. It wasn't a $25 ticket price, it was bucks. five yeah, bucks. Yeah, exactly, yeah. We could pay five bucks. Mm -hmm. That's why we get hundreds of people coming to our, our classical shows. It's a $20 ticket price. Mm -hmm. We're playing a three hour concert at Laurel Hill mm -hmm. on September 26th, $20. Three hours. You can get a one-hour concert for $75 at the Verizon Hall. You can get a three-hour concert amongst the dead, in the gravestones, by the gravestones, in the coolest cemetery this mm -hmm. whole state has to offer, Laurel Hill Cemetery, and watch a classical group with a theremin run down everything from Danny Elfman compositions to Mozart opera pieces mm -hmm. and still appeal to you no matter what your musical tastes are. So I thank you for giving me this opportunity to connect these dots and to maybe show a lot of other folks in Philly, number one, it doesn't matter what your age is. Sun Ra didn't start till he was 45 and he sure made an impact in the like 50 years that followed. And it doesn't matter what background you came from. It doesn't matter if you were a punk and you're playing classical music. Sometimes I've heard people say, oh, yeah, that guy used to play punk and now he plays classical music. Oh, he must be stuck up or snob. And mm -hmm. people say, no, 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 he's the same guy I remember him being because that's, that's what Philly taught us, that you can be friends. I can reach out to someone like you who weren't in that generation that I saw. Mm -hmm. And first thing I saw was your coffee cup collection, which, by the way, he is a black flag coffee cup. <laughs> slip it in. And, and, yeah, slip it in. And I'm going, yeah, I remember when that album came out. I remember buying that T-shirt for the first time. And here I can come and do an interview and walk into somebody's kitchen and see that mug on their counter and be like, that's what we're here to talk about today. That whole punk rock to classical world. Mm -hmm. So for those folks who are still listening, thank you for your time, your patience, and listening to my story. I hope you'll learn more about us. Our next performance is the Ardmore Music Hall. 
which is, again, another suburban thing. And last time we played the Ardmore Music Hall, there was Dave Rashan from FOD in the audience. And I'm going, that's, that's what our non-classical classic music's all about. Mm-hmm. A guy who played in a punk hardcore band with me in the 80s can come to our show. And I hope I'm not putting words in his mouth, but I think he enjoyed it. And, of course, Colin, my partner in crime, Colin Markin, who... He was the guy who took me to 90% of the hardcore shows I ever saw growing up in the 80s. To this day, I've seen him, his wife, and his daughters at our concerts, whether it be Laurel Hill or, or, or we played Woodbury Arts Fest in New Jersey. He had the whole group come over, threw us a little picnic. Again, that camaraderie still mm-hmm. there, that simpatico, that, that's just beautiful music. And it didn't matter that Colin was home that day listening to Dyke Krutzen. My group was like, the hell is he listening to? Because mm-hmm. they're classical folks. But yeah. they, they were like, wow, this is great that him and his daughters could appreciate what we do and still like other kinds of music. And that brings me full circle to why it was such a great opportunity to sit down and kind of illustrate these points in hopes that maybe they'll influence someone else as well. Super. Well, two quick uh, things before sure. we take off. One was that when you were talking about that earlier, I was thinking of uh, early music, which I'm a big fan of, and how it came to a sort of, it was in effect resurrected in the late 60s and early 70s. You know, a lot of the musical instruments, and, and correct me if I'm wrong because I'm not an uh, expert on this, but a lot of the musical instruments that had been employed couldn't be used in big concert halls you in, are in correct. later years and thus had fallen out of favor. And, and like later, the harpsichord is a great example of that. Yeah, later, like incarnations or iterations of the the instruments came into being uh, and then people like uh, David Monroe and early music consort of London would perform with these instruments that had largely been lost performing this music that was largely lost and, and in a more intimate setting because they couldn't really you know do the proper amplification to to blow out so therefore you're kind of they're reaching a different audience uh, with these sort of performances uh, and, and resurrecting these uh, they were and, and resurrecting is a good thing let me just interrupt you there we've got a retro future thing happening there and that always thrills me to no end I think that's what the Thurman is I think that's what the Divine Hand does and it's what you just described you've got an instrument that appealed to this generation that was no longer appearing in musical compositions like the harpsichord and and those early music consort people bringing it to a new generation and showing people, you know, this is why this was so popular 100 years ago. Now, I know you've got a Korg keyboard now that can replicate it. Yeah, but what about the sack butt? But, right, yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. You can't replicate the sack butt. <laughs> but, but you have that now, and I think that's a big part. There should always be artists who want to show the next people why something was popular back then. And that's why I, 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 I like the fact that music keeps coming around. I don't even complain that we're in the age of the disposable commodity of the pop song. I think we need that just as much as we need the band to follow on tour like the Grateful Dead, just as much as we need the, the Dead Kennedys to make us feel this is why we're angry at our president or why we're not angry at our president. You you are a fan of uh, prog rock, which which I am Huge as well. Fan. And uh, I mean, I guess as someone involved in in many musical worlds, you could see this you know amalgamation of different styles. Mm-hmm. Where there's a you know rock basis, and then you've got classical music in there, and then sometimes absolutely and other things and avant garde. Uh, were, were there any particular prog bands that you were uh, a great admirer of, or continue to be? When I was a drummer. 70s Rush. Now, to this day, I still love 70s Rush. I'm not a fan of 80s, 90s, or beyond Rush because they took all the prog elements that made me like them so much out of their music to survive throughout the 80s and 90s. But albums like Hemispheres and um, Farewell to Kings 
Mm-hmm. I, as a young kid, the drumming on those records blew me away. And my warm-ups, I, I, I can remember like before FOD practice, I'd warm up to a Rush album. And like I remember my friends being somewhat confused by that. And then they'd remember that I had this wide musical taste mm-hmm. before punk rock. So I, I, I think that um, 70s Rush, uh, 70s Yes, Goblin from Italy, one of my all-time favorite bands. Mm-hmm. My group do classical interpretations of Goblin. One of my favorites is, and we have a video for this, we do the theme to the movie Opera, uh-huh. uh, which is you know straight up Simonetti, written by Goblin, I'm a huge prog fan of their work there. Mm-hmm. They're probably my favorite prog band. Um, secondary modern prog, classic prog, some people consider early craft work prog. I like all of that. Um, I like modern stuff, um, like the Mirrors and people who do what... People call math rock today, mm-hmm. which I still think is prog. Have you ever listened to Universe Zero? No, I'm not the, familiar the with that. Performing them. on bassoons and all kinds of. Very See, now I love stuff like yeah. that. And uh, 70s King Crimson and early 80s King Crimson blew me away. Still blow me away. Mm. Huge fan of that kind of stuff. So I do listen to a lot of prog. I, I listen to what would be considered pretty classic standard stuff mm-hmm. in prog world. I'm not a fan of some of the really obscure stuff like Gong or. Amon Ra or Van der Graaff Generator. You don't, you don't like them? It's not them? that I don't like them. I don't enjoy listening to them. I like them, but it's not the type of music I want to hear all day the way I might. Uh, I don't particularly care for Yes, but Close to the Edge I can listen to all day because yes I'm pretty record. blown away. And, yeah. and even going for the one with Awaken, like there's mm-hmm. so many nods. And one of my all-time favorite bands then and now is Jethro Tull, especially mm-hmm. their 70s period because... Yeah, I know. Yeah, the guy, one leg, the flute, aqualung. I, I get why people don't. But if you know anything about classical composition, the, the writing that they put into their music, the overlapping stuff, not since Stravinsky has anyone done it, let alone a rock band, let alone a prog rock band. Mm-hmm. So let me give you an example. You could take a, an album from 1978, like Heavy Horses by Jethro Tull. It's a song on there. I believe it's the last song on side one called Moths. Mm-hmm. And you have four different counter melodies going in rounds off one another for the bridge. That's what Stravinsky did. It sounds like two marching bands playing two different songs crossing an alleyway together. And mm-hmm. for one moment... The, the sum is bigger than the parts. And, and t- when I first heard that, knowing composition, it blew me out of the water that a band would do this. And it would be overlooked. It would you know, then be followed by a little 4-4 guitar solo. And that's the part everybody understood. Yeah, right, right. So I, I do love all that. And to this day, when I hear something like that, and when I'm playing like a, like a Tull record, like um, Passion Play after rehearsal, and we're packing up, well... One of my players will always look at me and go, oh my God, I just love what they did with that chord change there. And mm-hmm. it's always, it always rings to them. So I like that. And because of that, I still listen to a lot of prog. And I'm a big keyboard fan, big electronic music fan. Some people would call Kraftwerk prog or Jean-Michel Jarre prog. But um, I, I like it all, especially the monstrous King Crimson stuff. Yes, super. Uh, and I guess we'll end... We were supposed to talk about this. Tell me about the the bugs in the dread. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so yeah, yeah. I forgot. We totally forgot off this thing. So my my friend Apollo, who Mm -hmm. I had mentioned earlier in the interview, uh, we shared a place up. uh, I guess it was like around 40th and Arch. Some I don't remember the exact street. And and I remember we were sitting sitting back and and some friends of us were, were like all hanging out and psychedelics were going around. And what had happened was Apollo had gone to sleep 
and a spider had crawled into one of his dreads and laid eggs. And while we were sitting there with a head full of drugs, <laughs> waiting to go to a concert like Abe's steak, his hair blew open and spiders just started coming out everywhere. And none of us thought it was real, including him. We were like, this is the wow. ending to the interview. Yeah, I'm, I'm tripping balls. There's spiders coming out of your hair. So I was like, yeah, I'm seeing them too. And he's like, yeah, it's like they're really coming. And they were just pouring out Jesus of his head. It was my worst nightmare. And then, of course, we all realized that it was happening in reality and then we turned into a bunch of like seven-year-old girls <laughs> screaming and jumping up on tables and it was very funny to see these big tough punk rock guys screaming and squealing because baby spiders were like charlotte's webbing everywhere all over the I place right and with you on that one his dredge just broke open and spiders just start pointing hundreds of them or at least what look like hundreds of them yeah, sure. to me. So there you go. There's a nice, nice visual to end your, your interview. Wow. Uh, <laughs> well, thank you for doing this. I, I know there, there are things we can't talk about, but you have very big events coming up. Indeed, and we they do. They are amazing. So they people, are. people hearing this in the future will know what they are. People hearing this right now will have to wait. But By the end of summer, all of this information that we can't talk about, that right. we're circumlocuting right now, can be found on our website, divinehand.net. And uh, you'll be able to see some of the wonderful opportunities of a punk rock musician who put together the world's only theremin-led classical group are getting to bring this. We don't want a wall between us. We want you folks in the audience to do what I did growing up. Be able to walk up to Jello by offer and go, that ruled. I couldn't do that to Steven Tyler of Aerosmith mm -hmm. in 1981, but I could do that to Jello by offer and I could do that to Sun Ra. So we encourage you folks, if you like classical music or you just want to see something different, come visit Divine Hand, come see us, and please break that barrier. Walk up and talk to us. Thank you very much.